This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston, and today we are listening to Pantera's seminal, I said that before, didn't I, about the last one as well, but it really is, seminal album, uh, Vulgar Display of Power from 1992, um, an album that uh, a surprising number of people, of our listeners, hadn't either hadn't heard before or hadn't even heard any Pantera before, which blew it's my mind. It's kind of mind-blowing, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, at the end yeah. of the last episode, because this because at the end of the last episode, I said an album which I'm sure everybody's familiar with, and people let us know on, on Facebook and Twitter, like, actually, no. And I was like, really? But then, of course, you know, I remembered We Are Old Men, and... We uh, Are Old Men, This yes. album is 25 years old. 25 years old. And to be fair, Pantera, their last album was 17 years ago now. So if you're... You know, if you're like a kid, listen, I say a kid, if you're a young man listening to this, say you're 22, you were five when Pantera's last album came out. And frankly, their last album was not all that great. So, no, it wasn't. You know, so it is actually, when you think about it like that, you're like, oh God, yeah, okay. It is quite understandable that people, that, you know, young metal fans now just may not have heard Pantera. It'd be like when Pantera were around in the 90s, people our age who maybe hadn't listened to Black Sabbath. You know, right. which I had, and, as we've covered, because I loved them, but there were loads of people who'd never heard any Sabbath or Led Zeppelin or anything like that. Going back to this album and, and uh, just sort of thinking about the time that it came out and everything like that, like I, I think definitely there is the age factor for us, because I know, like for me, I don't consider Pantera to be an old band. Uh, when I think back to the initial music that I was listening to, the Megadeth, the Metallica, like Pantera was part of that second wave for me. And so they were a newer band. You know, um, I almost put them in the same category as your Alice in Chains and your Nirvana and stuff like that. Not musically, but in terms of like when I think of them. The generation. Time period wise. Yes. Because, you know, while I'm familiar, you know, with their back catalog now, because Cowboys from Hell was their major label debut, in terms of us hearing them on MTV and us really having an awareness of them, like that came in that second wave. So even though they were around with some of those older bands that I really grew up listening to, they didn't come into sort of the public consciousness until a time where that first group of bands was already established. Yeah, well, so, they were pretty much a regional band up until Cowboys from right. Hell. So, you yeah, know, unless Louisiana, you actually... Texas, that kind of... Right, yeah. unless you lived in Texas, then, you know, entirely right. understandable that you'd never have heard of, of them. But this is what I mean about the age. Think 25 years ago, when you and I were 25, Right. the 25-year-old album was... Paranoid, <laughs> the Black Sabbath album that, that we insane? did. It's insane, right? <laughs> and the thing about Alice in Chains, which um, again, when we went back to listen to this album, and I was sort of looking at you know some of the headlines from the Times and everything like that. When this album came out, it really established Pantera as the band at that particular oh, time yeah, in terms yeah, yeah. of carrying the banner for metal, right? And they basically, and this came up, uh, Loudwire actually has a three-part documentary. It's only like 15 minutes long, but you can find it on YouTube, uh, about Vulgar Display of Power. And really, one of the things that was discussed in there is how they essentially carried the banner for metal during a time where metal fell out of fashion. Yep. Or at least the metal that we were used to listening to, uh, you know, in the mid to late 80s. Yeah, and so thrash was, became deeply unfashionable, grunge took correct. over. We've talked about this before, about how yeah. loads of the traditional metal bands of the 80s tried to change their sound to become Absolutely. more like grunge bands, yeah. Megadeth, Testament, you know, like uh, all of these bands. And so 
what's interesting about that, and, and so when you said, like, I'm sure everybody has heard this album, and I'm sure everybody's heard Pantera, Pantera, it's because I think in our minds, like, there was a time where Pantera was the only band. They were, like, the only band that was really carrying the banner for metal. So everyone knew them if you were a metal fan because they were like the ones that were keeping it alive. And so, you know, I, I, think, I think that, that might be slightly overstating the case, but I know what you mean. I understand that. Well, it, I am prone to hyperbole, <laughs> Anthony. So, uh, but, 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 you know, in terms I of consciousness, under, I like, understand exactly what you mean. They were the biggest band. Like it was impossible to be into metal in the early nineties and not listen to Pantera. Right. And they were still doing it and they were, they were proud of it. You know what I mean? Like they were yeah. out there, they were carrying that banner for metal in a way that other bands were either struggling to figure out how to do or were shying away from because they yeah. were trying to change their sound to fit the times of the times and Pantera, uh, you know, the, the sound of the times. And so, but Pantera was just out there doing their thing, man. And so there was a time where Pantera was just in such heavy rotation for me in whatever I was listening to, because they were the go-to harder band. Yep. Of Absolutely. the stuff that I was listening to, you know, and uh, especially during those early to mid nineties there. So, so yeah, there was a time where Pantera basically ruled the world when it came to metal. Um, and that's why to us, it seems they just seemed ubiquitous. Yeah. Absolutely. I th- yeah, I think that's a really good summary of it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's put that aside for a moment and uh, do a bit of follow up. Um, one of the first things I want to say is in the last episode, I had a, for some reason, I don't know why, I said that Ozzy Osbourne did four albums with Black Sabbath before he was, you know, quit or he fired or, or was he fired or whatever. Um, b- bollocks. It was eight. <laughs> I mean, like that's quite a big, you know, mistake to make. I just had a complete Did you get any angry corrections I, after that. No, no, it was angry at myself. Just yeah. when, I, when I listened back, I was like, did I really say that? Just a complete brain fart. And it's, I know exactly why it's because the fifth album was, uh, Sabbath, bloody Sabbath. Um, which is not a great album. It has like, two good tracks on it, including the title track. And that's basically it. And so from that point onwards, I just kind of forget about Sabbath, (laughs) to be honest. Like, as far as I'm concerned, it's the first four albums. They are, to me, their classic Aussie era Sabbath. And everything else is just not. (laughs) So I I know why I said it, but even I was really annoyed myself. I was like, how could you possibly say that <laughs> i couldn't i couldn't even tell you how many albums that metallica has put out um but that's how i think of metallica it's their first four albums for me that that makes up the when i talk about their sound and i talk about what i think about so i i think with these bands that have this discography of you know they're in the teens they're in the 20s now of different albums like they're it's in chunks you know yeah. of their sound or a particular lineup of the group or something like that um, you could certainly break Megadeth down like that. You, Slayer is probably more, the mo- the most consistent one in terms of like how you think about their different eras. But Anthrax, you can break into different eras. So yeah, yeah. yeah that doesn't uh, that yeah, doesn't so, surprise so, me at all. So I, I didn't get any angry feedback. But if there were any Sabbath fans out there who just were disgusted, so disgusted that they couldn't be bothered to write in, but thought that I was an idiot, yeah, that that's why I apologize. <laughs> Uh, one other thing, uh, a bit of follow-up. Uh, we have one new patron since our last episode, and that is Justin Stanton. So, Justin, thank you very much for your support. Um, so we got some good feedback on our Facebook page, as usual, on the Ozzy Osbourne Blizzard of Oz episode. Um, man, the discussion that people have, it, it's just uh, its just fantastic. Again, this was an album that some people had not listened to uh, or had not heard more than a couple of the you know singles off of and stuff like that, so it was great to sort of see 
Uh, Tony said, I actually bought the album a few weeks ago and have given it a few spins, so I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say. It really wasn't my bag, uh, although it has elements that I liked. And I think for people who don't consider themselves like big Aussie solo period fans, that was kind of the take, is that it wasn't necessarily um, something that totally clicked with them, but it had elements to yeah. it. Well, which is kind of um, how it how it was for me, yeah. And I am, yeah. you know, as we talked about in the episode, I am one of those people who I've never been a big Aussie solo fan. But there were parts of the album that absolutely, you know, that I enjoyed more than others. And yeah. Uh, Daniel said, once again, it's getting scary how my opinions align with Anthony. <laughs> uh, which, again, I think we're finding, too, is that there are certain listeners of this show who uh, just are almost word for word clicking with sort of how you or I interpret uh, a particular album. Uh, Dijon said, it took me very long to get used to the sound on this record, and even then, it's st- even though it's still not my thing, I can appreciate it and enjoy most of it. My favorite songs are Mr. Crowley, Revelation Mother Earth, and Suicide Solution. When listening to Revelation, I kept wondering how it would sound with Dio on vocals. Great pick, Brian. Mm. I'm glad I spent time with it. And I think that is sort of the, um, obviously, the Black Sabbath piece yeah, kicking yeah. in there. Because if you're a fan, you've listened to both singers, you know? Uh, my, this this one I was rolling when I first read. So Phil said, so I'm barely through the discussion of track three of the album, and I'm looking for my podcast app setting to mute just Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> he said, goodbye to romance does nothing for you. Are you dead inside? You really don't like Randy's guitar tone? Do you have wax build up in your ears? Uh, so he... <laughs> He, and then you guys had a great conversation, and then he finally said, okay, I got to the end, another phenomenal episode, even though Anthony was dead wrong for the first half of the album, although he did redeem himself somewhat in the second half of the I like, album. I like if it's says, me uh, who redeemed themselves, not the album itself. No, it's not the album. The album is etched in stone. The it album is, a scientific is flawless. Fact. Clearly the fault lies with me. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, which is right. I mean, when we have an album that really, Oh no, I mean, that's it. That's 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 the whole basis of the fucking show, you know? (laughs) Yeah. But what I love, what I love about our group in this, this, uh, community around this show is like, that is literally the harshest conversation that you're going to see on our Facebook page. Like that's as aggressive as it gets, you know, with uh, smiley emojis and, uh, and, and crying happy faces and stuff like that. So, uh, and Phil was one of the ones who said, uh, he says there is at least one person who doesn't own or has never listened to Pantera's Vulgar Display of Power, me. So yeah. I have some homework to do. Right. So but, I can't wait to hear what Phil thinks. Uh, f- but Phil, uh, if I recall correctly, is a glam metal guy like you as he well, is, isn't he? Yes. So, yeah, because yeah. you were advising him to go and listen to Pantera's earlier Oh, my stuff. God. We yeah. can talk about that in a few minutes. Holy <laughs> crap. Um, this band is a goldmine on so many different levels, but we'll uh, we'll we'll delve into that. Uh, so let's see. Greg said, as I mentioned in the Sabbath episode, I was lucky enough to see Ozzy on the Blizzard of Oz tour. Uh, old age has its advantages, he says. The excitement in the crowd before the band came on was huge. Everyone had only heard the Crazy Train single on the radio, and the album was only released that day or the day before, so most people, including myself, hadn't had a chance to hear it. They played pretty much all the full songs from the album, and of course the rest of the set was filled with Sabbath covers. The whole band seemed delighted with the crowd response, and Ozzy was grin- like a grinning idiot throughout the whole show. Randy Rhodes was this little skinny guy who just made his guitar sing in the solos he played, and for the last couple of songs and encores, he brought out his signature pink polka dot flying V. The gig <laughs> felt like it was over in a flash, and while I agree with thin guitar sound on the album recording, Live Rhodes had a much thicker sound with more distortion and a lot more random fills thrown into the songs than on the studio recordings, which to me is like... Oh my god! I wish Even I got to more, because there were already oh, plenty on this. He was a film recording. master. <laughs> uh, 
everyone should really have a listen to, everyone should really have a listen to the live tribute album to get a better feel for Randy Rhodes playing as it does him more justice in my humble opinion. That is a great point and that was how I was first introduced to Randy Rhodes. I remember buying this cassette off of a kid at school when I was in middle school. There was a kid who was a much more advanced metalhead than I was and I bought cassettes that he had off of him at school so he would bring in these bands that's where i bought my first first uh megadeth cassette which was so far so good so what ah, right. uh, and i bought this tribute cassette off of him so my first experience of randy was the live stuff which was amazing and that in those the way he played those songs live is what was ingrained into my head and so everybody should check that out if you haven't seen the live tribute album it's fantastic uh it's definitely really captures the feel of Randy Rhodes live, which for me is as close as I ever got because I never saw him live. Do you know, uh, that would drive me nuts to go to a concert and not have had chance to listen to the album that they're promoting for the uh-huh. I mean, these days that's not such a big thing because we've, as we've discussed before, bands are playing live so much more now because they have to, to make money that it's right. kind of the old cycle of release an album do a six-month tour to support it, then go right. back in the studio, record another album, go out on tour yep. again. That cycle is kind of not... That's what com- we grew up with. Right. It's not completely gone by the wayside now, but it's nowhere near as ubiquitous as it used to be. But in that period, that would drive me insane. Like going to see, a, especially a band that I liked, and not having had chance to at least listen to the album that they're going to promote and therefore you know they're going to play loads of tracks from before you get to see the show. That would just drive me bonkers. I'm the guy who, like, you know, on the way to a Metallica gig would just listen to Metallica in the car <laughs> the whole way there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right, but I think that's how we grew up, right, is that that's exactly what the cycle was. The album came out first, you were hearing singles months ahead of time, and then when they came out on tour, you were hearing the songs that you were already yeah. very familiar with. And so... You know, the fact that a lot, and really only the opening band sometimes would be the band that you had never heard, you know, or that had the album coming oh, out next week yeah, or, I mean, or something that, like that. That happened all the time, yeah. But I mean, sure. I can remember going to gigs, especially of smaller bands. I think it was, it might have been Curb Dog when I first saw Curb Dog at uh, JB's in Dudley. And anybody uh-huh. anybody old enough to remember JB's in Dudley knows what a fucking pit that was. Um, but I, I think I went to see them. I bought tickets to see them like the day after their debut album came out. Uh, and, and so I just had that album on repeat for like 24 hours before the gig so that I wouldn't know (laughs) the song. That's why this is the perfect (laughs) podcast for you. You're all about the homework. (laughs) Uh, So Kenneth said, something struck me going into listening to this album that I found weird metal as I love it didn't exist at this point that this album was made. The first Iron Maiden was released in 1980, but that's where I start with heavy music. Not that important, he said, but it was a good lens to listen through because I hated this album. He said, I struggled to listen the whole way through once and didn't manage another playthrough. I found myself skipping after about a minute into each song. It was really interesting to hear that Rhodes came from Quiet Riot because listening to the album, all I could hear was proto-hair metal. I was amazed to hear how huge this record was. He said it certainly wasn't in Ireland. Uh, And I guess it's why it had such a massive influence on American rock music. To be a bit nicer, he said, I did like Suicide Solution. It's a great song, but that was about it for me. He said, but what I really did enjoy was Brian talking about Randy Rhodes. There was so much passion and love for his work. It really shined through, and I will always enjoy people talking from the heart about the music they enjoy so much. Uh, He said, looking forward to the vulgar display of Power Chat, the Facebook reaction should be pretty mixed, 
I'll bring popcorn. Uh, I, I predict it will be very mixed, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tony said, just finished listening to the episode, and while I wasn't quite as down on this album as Anthony, I did agree with many of his criticisms. When I was younger, I only knew Ozzy as that uh, crazy 80s hair metal guy who did the cheesy songs and looked like somebody's mom. <laughs> Uh, when I was about 15 and discovered he'd actually been in a cool 70s band who happened to invent metal, it was a total revelation to me. So it was interesting to listen to him essentially cross over from one to the other on this album. I didn't mind the guitar tone. This was the this was 1980 after all, so it's really cl- quite slick for its time. And I think any more girth would have muddied the production. It allows space in the mix for the bass guitar, which is the star of the show for me, quite some feat considering how well-regarded Rhodes' work is on this album. Generally, though it's all far too cheesy for me, and I much rather would listen to Technical Ecstasy or Never Say Die, especially tracks like Shockwave, which rocks 100 times harder than anything on Blizzard of Oz. He said, great episode, though. I really enjoyed it, and I don't regret buying the album, as it was still quite interesting despite all the cheese. As for Pantera, really not keen. They always sounded too new metal for my tastes, and a quick scrub through a vulgar display of power on YouTube confirms that it's not for me. I'll still love the next episode anyway, I'm sure. I wonder if Tony has spent any more time with it since then, um, yeah, because that may have changed his opinion. The the, uh, the new metal thing, like that, that got me at the time. I'm like, really, really? Yep. Uh, but I mean, I, I guess I can see it. I can see why, if you're not familiar with Pantera, exactly, and not for that familiar with new metal, even maybe, you know, that you might conflate the two. But yeah, man. <laughs> well, and dude, how many people again? I wish we had uh, had done a poll. I wish there was a poll of actual like Pantera quote unquote fans. How many people thought that Cowboys from Hell was their first album? Oh, how many people uh, thought that that Pantera started in 1990? To be fair, Pantera kind of like promoted that notion themselves. Oh, they tried to bury their old stuff into yeah, this day. Yeah. Like they don't, they haven't re-released power metal or anything yeah, like that. They pretty so we, much ignored everything yeah. pre Cowboys, uh, you know, right. and for understandable. Now you can argue whether you think it was a good thing, but I think anybody can understand why it's a very much an understandable thing, whether or not you think it's a good or bad decision. I, you can totally understand why they did it because the difference in everything, you know, sure. sound image, Phil's vocals, just production, everything between power metal and Cowboys from Hell is just, it's a chasm. It's enormous. I think Pantera is the poster band for realizing that heavy metal is professional wrestling. Um, There is so much, so much of that image is fake with all of these bands, you know what I mean? That it's crafted. It's very carefully crafted. And that doesn't mean that the music can't have uh, emotional lyrics and that the playing can't be emotional, that kind of stuff, but their actual image and how they're marketed and and how they come across is it's professional wrestling. It's the WWF. Um, And so that's that when you look at Pantera's history, you sort of see how within one band that plays itself out very, very clearly. And so um, I always laugh when, you know, people want to dismiss hair metal or glam metal as, uh, you know, not not uh, powerful enough or not, uh, you know, not manly enough and all that kind of stuff when it's all the same. Like, it, whether, you, whether you're talking about um, Slayer and their, you know, uh, projected imagery or you're talking about, uh, you know, Poison, it's, it, there, there's an element of that is, that's all the same. And right. so that's, why, e- even the that's decision, why I love pointing out. Even the decision not to have a glamorous image correct is still a decision about your image you yep. know much like a metallica 
were, you know, famously one of the first to do this, where, you know, they were one of the first heavy metal bands to not dress up and yep. to just go on stage in what and they to were not wearing do on the videos. street. Right. But Remember that, that? But that still is a decision. A decision Absolutely. to not dress up is still a decision about your image. So, yeah, one of the things that always cracked me up about Pantera and their, their transition, uh, I mean, for a start, there was after... Um, after sort of me and my friends discovered Pantera, uh, one of my old, old mates, uh, found a picture in, I don't know, an issue of Kerrang or something of the cover of power metal, because of course, most people had no idea. And he was like, so, you know, that guy who looks like he'd like, you know, kick you and set you on fire at a moment's notice on the cover of, uh, you know, in the sleeves of these Pantera albums. Yet yeah, this is what he looked like a couple of years ago. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> which cracked us up. Um, yep, and I completely understand why Pantera would change their image, because, and they did so, so successfully. They you know? did, but here's the thing. Pantera are one of the only examples I can think of of a band that changed their image to be less mainstream, to be less sort of AOR, less uh, mass appeal, and became huge as a result. Most bands, including Ozzy, look at what we were just talking about with Ozzy. You yep. know, Ozzy went from being a sort of vaguely hippie-ish inventor of heavy metal, you know, singer in a band, to looking like he'd stepped out of an Estee Lauder commercial or something. With I his would ri- offer. ridiculous hair and the makeup and everything. Uh, and, you know, like leopard print scarves and what have you that he was wearing in the 80s. Uh, I would argue that the greatest thing that Pantera ever did was to read the tea leaves of where things were going. Oh, totally. Because they, uh, because you're absolutely right. Uh, because on the surface level, they did something that when you first look at it would have made them less popular. Exactly. But they knew something clearly that other people did not know. And by the time the other band started to catch on to it, it was too late for them. And they were posers if they tried to change yep. what they were doing. Well, and Pantera got ahead of it. But I was going to point out, if you do some digging, you'll also find the... Um, the glam roots of Alice in Chains, which you can hear oh, yeah. on on their first album. And uh, Soundgarden uh, as well, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, but there's some good stuff out there of uh, of Alice in Chains dressed in their glam outfits, you know, playing before they, uh, I forget what the, the heck they were named. Uh, we'll do, uh, when we know. do the Alice in Chains episode at some point, we can we can dig into that a little bit more. But yeah, Pantera's, th- their, their greatest strategic move was getting about two years ahead of everybody else in that. And, you know, basically becoming... The template. You know, the ones that, the template for that, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. to the um, point where, and this is the one that always gets me, uh, it, like Pantera, every, anybody who knows a bit of hit Pantera's history, you know, as we, let's get into it a little. We've touched on it here. They were, they started out as a sort of straight ahead, fairly glam rock and metal band. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, and then very they- Very Def Leppard, um, right. very ACDC influenced, well, and um, very, very Kiss influenced. And very Judas Priest influenced oh, absolutely and, even before anselmo came right aboard. exactly and, and anselmo himself massive judas priest fan as Hugh well humongous absolutely which you can hear even on cowboys from hell you know there Definitely. are tra- tracks like uh shattered and um what's the other well cemetery gates even to an extent you can really hear even the art of shredding yeah like yeah there yeah, you can he really hear the halford influences like massive and he's never he never shied to his credit he never shied away from that he never pretended that he didn't like uh, bands like that or that he didn't like Judas Priest. Um, but 
you know, in the, the way everything goes in circles, what happened in 1991 after being on tour with Pantera, basically Pantera supported Judas Priest. I know where you're going with this Promoting one. Cowboys from Hell. What happened? Rob Halford left Judas Priest. And, and adopted f- Phil Anselmo's image. And two years later, turned up with a band called Fight that was basically... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Diet Pantera, and frankly, wasn't all that great. If you, if you, if you heard, no, but his even his album, image, like his, uh, oh yeah, him everything. sitting there with his jean shorts and his shirt off and yeah, everything like that, shirt. like his whole, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, and it's not that great an album. It really is a sort of Pantera by numbers, a groove metal by numbers album, the Fight album, um, because but, they hadn't exactly, and 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 so you know, with Pantera and, um. Yeah, well, you know what? I'll save that for when we get into it because well, the, this the is evolution what I mean. of their sound, they had earned it. Whereas oh, sure. some of these other bands were a little bit more paint by numbers because they were trying to copy it. Absolutely. And that's the thing. But talking about them setting a template, like they even for sure. set a template for people who had influenced them, but the were then trying to reinvent themselves. Um, yep. Which just always, I remember when, when it was announced, well, when it was announced that Halfa was leaving Priest. You know, everybody was like, oh, you know, that's interesting. Okay, whatever. It's another Aussie situation, I guess. Uh, but then when he turned back up on the scene with fight, <laughs> my yeah. God, you know, the general reaction was, oh, shit. Uh, yeah. So he listened to a few Pantera albums then, did he? <laughs> right. Right. I mean, what what bigger endorsement of the effect that Pantera had on that landscape than yeah. to get well, somebody you know, one of, of Mount Rushmore of metal singers yeah. to basically, I mean, that that would be the equivalent of Dio you know, deciding to go new metal. Right. You know what I mean? Like, just like, and it, exactly. It's like, when you say it's like a holy shit moment, it was of like, whoa, what the? Yeah. All right. Wow. I guess this guy was really affected by that. I just want to read a couple more. Um, sure. From sure. Sorry. Yeah. We, wrap we up our went off thing. on a massive digression uh, there. It's but. so hard because Pantera <laughs> is, uh, it, it's such a great band to talk about. Um, so Brian Bibb said, Teenage Me completely wore out my tape of Blizzard of Oz, and so I found myself agreeing intellectually with all of Anthony's criticisms and still loving every single note. Uh, right, which, Sean said, and, and I said it on the forum, I said in reply to that, that's basically me with Halloween. Yeah. Like, I, I am completely aware of all of its faults and cheese and everything, and yet I just can't help myself. Just remember, everybody, cheese is awesome, right? <laughs> everybody loves cheese. Who doesn't like cheese? I love cheese, but I can't you put, eat you it put cheese on everything, <laughs> uh, right? But you can't. But it hurts that you can't eat it, right? Oh yeah, because totally. you you love it. You, yeah, we love the cheese. Absolutely. Uh, Sean said this was a good one, Anthony and Brian. I really enjoyed it. I remember at the time this and uh, Diary of a Madman being just before me getting to see Ozzy live. He saw him on the Bark of the Moon tour. Blizzard was my favorite of the two, although it felt like a mixed bag at the time. Uh, not used to an American sound. Randy's guitar was awesome. I liked the thin sound and his fluidity, but I was never that mad about Ozzy's solo career. It was a great pantomime to a 15-year-old. The bat and the pigeon stories and the hanging the dwarf were stuff that always brightened up uh, an issue of Kerrang. He said, goodbye to romance never sat well with me. It's not aged well. Uh, like Dire of a Madman, which is really hard to listen to. Conversely, Heaven and Hell still works for me. Ronnie had a great set of lungs, and despite the feelings of disloyalty at the time, I enjoyed the new lease on life he gave to Sabbath. I'll stop now as this is turning into an essay. <laughs> uh, Scott said, I get why people like the album and Ozzy in general, and I do like the first two plus Suicide Solution and Mr. Crowley, but man, not my cup of tea. Said good pod as usual. Dan said, I enjoy Ozzy because he's Ozzy. I was never a huge fan, but there are some good tunes here. The homework though, Pantera were my first ever gig, so I'm excited. Oh, wow. 
He said, uh, that being said, I'd reckon Randy's MXR distortion plus driven tone on this is closer to that of Dimebag and his solid state Randall amps than it is to most of the rest of your top metal guitarists. That is a point that I wanted to make sure to mention today because I'm very interested to hear for people who were had an aversion to Randy's guitar tone what they think of Dimebag's uh, guitar tone. Because I, to me, I see a lot of similarities there. Um, and maybe what's around it is what's different for me. But we can talk about that when we get into it. Sure. Uh, Lenny said, whilst being a full-blooded Sabbath devotee, this was my first full listen to an Aussie album. I found myself much more enamored with Brian and Anthony's background on the recording and history of the album than the album itself. Uh, and the last one I'll read is, uh, oh, Andy. Andy's in a timeout after this comment, but I'm going to read it anyways. <laughs> He said, wow, you guys all really like Bob Daisley's bass sound? I mean, his playing is pretty good, but his tone is awful. His bass <laughs> sounds like robot farts on this album. So Andy uh, is suspended for one episode. Um, he can come back after the Pantera episode. He's in the sin bin. Um, yeah, he is in the sin bin. He's in the penalty box. That is a game misconduct right there. Uh, so Darren said, goodbye to Romance Moves Me to Tears as well, Brian. So you're not alone. This is an excellent album, and Randy Rhodes' work here is monumental. Ozzy has always been more about his vocals and his showmanship. He was so incredibly fortunate that he surrounded himself with so much talent. And I think really that is the story of Ozzy's career, right? Um, I do think he is undervalued as a vocalist sometimes. I think people do tend to dismiss that. But boy, when it came to his solo career, and obviously with Sabbath as well, just the people that surrounded him on these albums, in particular his guitar players, were just, I mean, unbelievable oh sure yeah and i mean we did we did discuss that a little in the in the episode itself and you know but that's not i think sometimes when you say that about especially about a singer uh, because this is this there's this perception that singing is like the easy part of Mm. being a musician and that if you if you're a singer who doesn't play an instrument as well frankly you know you've got the easy job because all you have to do is open your mouth and preen on stage Anybody who's actually done it knows that that's you know, really, really not the case. Um, but I think as a result, when you say things like, yeah, you know, he surrounded himself with really good people that made him sound better. Some people think that you are dismissing their contribution or their talent or whatever. And that's not the case at all. You know, it's certainly not no. what what you or I mean. Uh, because when, nobody when sounds that. like Ozzy. Right, right. No and, one well, sounds like Ozzy. And it's still, you know surrounding yourself with teaming up with the right people to make a work of art is in itself a reflection on, you know, you as an artist, that is part of the art. You know, I get this in comics, picking artists to work with and stuff. Um, and as a musician, you know, as a former musician myself and all that, it is, you know, picking the right people to form a band with or joining the right band or whatever is frankly, you know, part of, being an artist, because it's a decision you're, again, like the decision about your image, it's a decision you make that will affect all the art you make going Without forward. Without a doubt. And so, and you, you know, don't have to look any further than Ozzy's later career, exactly. especially after Zach Wilde dropped out of the band. Not that I don't like Gus G or, or, you know, some of the other musicians that he's worked with, but... Um, right, but you can't deny that there's no, the magic that were, that he had with guys like Zach Wilde and yep. uh, Randy Rhodes, just, you know, it's not there for, which is why he's going back to Zach Wilde, you know? Right. And, and so, um, yeah, absolutely. It, it affects the output and uh, the art that you're making. Yeah. So it's absolutely not a, you know, a sort of, uh, we're not 
slagging off or taking a swipe at guys like Aussie when we say things like that because no yeah, because but know. I look at it in the larger scope of like you see uh, there's how many countless bands out there that have individually talented people that didn't put that just the don't rest of the pieces together gel, yeah yeah and they never got like even look at a guy like Ingve Malmsteen arguably one of the greatest guitar players ever to walk on this planet however his success and his notoriety in my mind as I see it from from over here in the states is directly tied to what vocalist he was working with at the time. And when he wasn't working with an amazing vocalist uh, or a vocalist that really got the best out of what he was doing, his stuff, for me, tends to all blend together, right? Or And so for me, that's why Ingve wasn't even bigger than he was, because he didn't necessarily have those pieces around him all the time. And there's a billion bands like that that just have, you know, uh, a lot of the hair metal bands in the 80s had virtuoso guitar players, but if they didn't have the rest of the pieces in place... Then they just got lost in, you know, the lost the thousands in the mix. Yeah, there's, yeah, they, there's uh, plenty of those bands that had enormously talented musicians yep. that, yeah, just didn't went nowhere. Um, right. Well, and you know, once again, Pantera had a vocalist before Anselmo. You know, uh, right. Terry Terry Glaze, who yep. was, is a fine vocalist. You know, absolutely nothing wrong with him as a vocalist, but it wasn't until. They thought he's not working for the sound we want to make and recruited right. Anselmo and then bang off to the races, you know? Right. Which I think is a great segue into our, our Pantera discussion because, um, all right. So yeah, well, be- before we get fully into it, then let me just, uh, there's a couple of other things. Uh, first of all, I want to say, uh, as always, thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, but especially because last month we broke you've heard me talk about this occasionally before on the show, we broke the 3000 barrier of RSS subscriptions from uh, our website, which is at thrashitoutpodcast.com. Now that includes like obviously our iTunes, you know, downloads and stuff. As I've said before, I don't, fully understand how to read <laughs> these <laughs> I metrics I have, they i've are, been doing it for 11 years i have no idea they are a bit of a black box um and i don't for a moment think that we actually have three thousand separate listeners i mean if we do i'm blown away i don't think yeah. we do uh, i th- i suspect that the are because th- i suspect that these rss subscriptions includes things like re-downloads multiple devices all that sort of thing i'm gonna guess that we've probably got maybe half, you know, that maybe we've got 1,500 listeners, sure. which is still amazing. I think we graduated um, from the local dive bar to the local music <laughs> hall. But you the know thing what I mean? Is, like, we're still... But it's the trend line is what I was going to say was it was about a year ago that I mentioned we'd crossed the 2,000 mark. So yep. in the space of the year since then, you know, we have now crossed the 3,000 mark, which is regardless of what the, it means in terms of actual numbers, that is still just amazing. So thank you to everyone for listening for supporting us, for spreading the word, you know, telling other people about the show, or if you've just like been around, looked around, discovered it and started listening regularly as a result, you know, thank you for going out there and looking for a show like this. Um, and for being such a great community, like we just talked about, we joked about, you know, the, the, the harshest type of argument that you see on our right. Facebook page from the community. <laughs> it's all very like good that, natured. Yeah. It is such a great community, not just on Facebook, but on Twitter. And, uh, it, it you know, just the conversations that are had and the welcoming of new members into the group and stuff like that. Really, it, I'm super proud of the community that is around the show because it's exactly what we wanted to see in in trying to capture that experience of hanging around with your friends and talking about the music that you love. And it's just, it's awesome to see it grow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then uh, finally, I wanted to let our patrons listening know that I am going to open up the nomination poll 
for this volume's Listener Choice album shortly, uh, because we'll do it the episode after the next one. So this is episode four. We'll do episode five after this, which is going to be Brian's choice of album. And then episode six, we'll do, on episode five, we'll do the random selection like we did before. And then episode six will be the listener choice um, uh, episode. So I am going to open that nomination poll on the Patreon page uh, soon. Probably not, uh, you know, maybe a few days after you listen to this show, but it will be soon. So keep an eye out for that. As always, make sure if you are one of our patrons, make sure that you have your email notifications turned on so that you know when this is, you know, happening. Um, and yeah, go to the Patreon, go to the thread that I will uh, start and give us your nominations for um, this year's Listener Choice episode. Yep. Can't uh, wait for that. Mastodon was the one we did last year, right? Blood Mountain. That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. And and while I don't think, I mean, as we said at the time, I don't think either you or I became enormous fans of that album as a result. I'm glad that I listened to it and got to talk about it. And it was certainly a popular episode with listeners. So, uh, And it, it made me more interested in their new album that just came out. I haven't right. picked it up yet, but I'm about two months behind in picking up new albums. So that that's no, uh, sure. <laughs> you know, that's not evidence of, of sort of where I'm going. But I think I am going to pick that up just because I have, a, I know that band now, whereas right. I didn't even know them before. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, just to uh, give all the reminders of the links before we get into talking more uh, even deeper about Pantera. Uh, remember that if you want to get in touch, you can go to thrashitoutpodcast.com for links to email and Twitter. Uh, our Facebook group is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. And of course, if you do enjoy listening to the show, please continue spreading the word. Uh, as always, you know, as I always say, rate us on iTunes. Uh, or Apple Podcasts, or whatever they're calling it now. That's one thing we know is important to the black yes. box that is Apple iTunes, yes. is that the, the reviews really help with their algorithm. Absolutely, yeah. And don't forget that you can now also find us on the Google Play Podcast yep. Store, and rate us there as well, please. Uh, and of course, you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out uh, to help us keep thrashing. So... Pantera. What a band, eh? Pantera. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, man. Uh, so this how, is a how band, did you, boy. I want to know, how did you, given that you are, and that you were such a diehard glam guy, how did you first come across Pantera? Oh, I came across Pantera with Cowboys from Hell. Right. And so, my, you know, their major label debut was, uh, when I first started listening to them, what I thought was their first album as well. Um, as did everyone, yeah, I, yeah. Yep. And so uh, I'm going to guess it was probably Cemetery Gates that I believe they did a video for that I saw um, on Headbangers Ball. Um, but that's where I came across them because that was an album that when it came out had a lot of people talking and uh, certainly established, established what I think is the middle part of the foundation that became this. Like to me, when I think of Pantera, um, there is the pre-Anselmo era. You know, because they they had was it three albums before? I think there was three albums. Before I think so. Yeah, yeah. Power metal, and then to me, and, and I know a lot of people won't agree with this, but the the trilogy of Pantera's best albums for me is Power Metal, Cowboys from Hell, and the peak uh, of this particular era of their sound with Vulgar Display of Power. After Vulgar Display of Power, for me, there's diminishing returns on every subsequent record from pantera so to me this was the culmination of the anselmo trilogy of albums where he came in on power metal as you said 
super influenced by Rob Halford. He is uh, very Halford-esque on that album. But you can hear on that album, especially that album, what was to come. In oh, you Cowboys can hear the roots. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, because uh, Diamond Daryl at the time, not Dimebag Daryl, <laughs> yeah. Diamond Daryl and Rex Rocker, <laughs> that's my favorite, uh, were, it was all there. That it, All that DNA was there, even pre-Anselmo. But when he came, he filtered them into a more aggressive sound, even on power metal. And to me, power metal is freaking phenomenal. Um, then Cowboys from Hell, really, that's where the groove, I think, started to come in. And then here, he had pretty much ditched all of his um, Halford-esque, you know, higher much, yeah. uh, you know, octaves and just went for the pure aggression. So th- this is the to me, like the rawest, most aggressive of those three albums, which um, consequently is when things started to diminish after this album for me, because I think they they got a little bit samey after this particular album. But man, those three albums together is such a great era of Pantera. And if you are one of those fans like me who loves the hair metal and the glam metal stuff, but also really likes the hardcore metal and stuff like that, there is uh, something for everyone within these three albums. And the sweet spot, I think, for most people might be Cowboys from Hell. But this album is just a freaking freight train. Uh, well, uh, m- mind you, I suppose, okay, yeah, if you are a glam fan, then I guess Cowboys from Hell actually might be the sweet spot because that still has, as you said, some of those elements. Whereas on this album, yep. they are pretty much gone completely. I'm, to nobody's surprise, uh, I would shift everything forward an album. So to me, uh, Cowboys is power metal. I I don't like. I'm afraid. Sorry. You can, I appreciate that you can. That's I like it enough for both of us. I, uh, <laughs> I appreciate, <laughs> as we said, that you can see the roots. You can see what became Cowboys from Hell in there. Sure, but I just it does nothing for me. But Cowboys and then this and then I really like Far Beyond Driven. Far Beyond Driven is actually my favorite Pantera album. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah. I absolutely love that album. Um, and that's what I was going to say was that this is this actually isn't my favorite album uh, of, of theirs. I like it. Don't get me wrong. It's I like it a either, lot, yeah. but it is not my favorite. I actually think I put this and um, Cowboys in about the same sort of level of approval, if you like, because okay. Cowboys is a great album. I do love it, but it has a few clunkers on it. Uh, and I would say this does as well. Like, yeah, this sort of towards the back end of the album, much like with Cowboys, this album starts to lose its footing a little. Whereas Far Beyond Driven, for me anyway, I feel just is a stormer all the way through. There's not a single track on that album that I do not love. So, but I mean, I think, I think that just speaks to, you know, your and my different. I do. I think that what we perfectly, you know, I think that you can superimpose that over our musical taste right. and i think that lines up very very well um for me what you just said about uh far beyond driven i would flip that with this album so right. I, I i feel like this album is more consistent although i do agree with you i suspect it might be on different songs for us but i feel like the back half of the album has some uh some has a couple of missteps there yeah yeah, yeah. uh it, yeah we i wouldn't say missteps but yeah a little bit weaker than some of the other stuff but uh whereas with far beyond driven there are probably three or four songs that i really love and the rest i could sort of take or leave and so right right um and that sort of uh, began to end my love affair and then after that was great southern trend kill right was i think was, yeah uh, which has like maybe three yeah, good tracks on it exactly and so like i said for me it's like power metal amazing cowboys from hell amazing and transformative 
Cowboys from Hell is like the Black Sabbath album to me that we just talked about in that it's you can feel it happening. You know, you can yeah, see yeah. the you, you can see the sort of shedding of the old skin and emerging from the cocoon. And then I feel like as we get into Vulgar Display of Power, like this is what most people think of as Pantera now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, just before I get into my history with them, I wanted to, you said something earlier that I wanted to tie into Pantera talking about sound and that's the, and forgive me, I can't remember who it was, but somebody on the uh, Facebook group saying about how, uh, if Randy Rhodes's uh, guitar sound had been sure. any thicker, the, the, the whole album would have felt muddy. And I must admit, I hadn't considered that because, but, but it, I think it's a very fair point because of course, that solo Aussie album, that first Aussie album was made, in fact, I think his first two or three solo albums were made before uh, the pioneering sort of death metal studio work that was done at uh, in Florida. Uh-huh. Because part of the innovation there was figuring out how to record double bass really fast, double bass drumming, without muddying the sound without it just overwhelming the bass and the bottom end right, of the and sound. Right, blending together, yeah. Right. And one of the ways that that was done was by removing a lot of the literal bottom end of the sound and increasing the treble on the kick drum, which, you know, sounds completely illogical. It sounds counterintuitive. Why would you do that? But that is how you get that clean, uh, fully separated, lovely double bass sound on a lot of death metal records and pantera and terry date producing pantera really kind of took that to an extreme because and i even read something about um like vinnie uh like taping or attaching like silver dollars to his kick uh, i can believe that yeah so like it just in experimenting with like how to get that sound right well and uh when i used to <laughs> I think I've mentioned it before, the design studio I used to work in. Uh, many years ago, um, there were three of us working, like three designers in the studio and then a few other people on sort of management side. But the three designers in the studio, and we basically shared a portable CD player, you know, a ghetto blaster, which was in the corner. And we literally took it in turns. That was the only way that we could do it. We took it in turns to play music throughout the day, um, which was great because it exposed all of us to music that we would never have listened to otherwise. Uh, it's how I got into like electronic mid nineties ambient from warp records and stuff. Um, yep. but at the time I was, you know, I was putting on things like Pantera and white zombie and what have you. And, uh, I remember whenever I put either this or far beyond driven on the CD player, uh, the, one of the guys would like start taking the taking the mick out of it by pretending to knock mar- glass marbles together with his fingers <laughs> because to him that was what Vinnie Paul's bass sounded like. He said there was there's yep. no bass there. It's like he's knocking glass marbles together. <laughs> yep. Yeah, he did have a particular, but I think a lot of the sound that he achieved. I mean, the thing that makes Pantera so unique especially at the time that they were putting this stuff out is that those those elements the groove elements yeah the very particular sound of uh dimebag's guitar tone the very particular sound of what Vinny was doing with the drums and then you know rex basically providing the bottom for all of that like yep. it, it just works in a way that it's a combination that other bands who even tried to repeat it couldn't Right. Well, it, much like, uh, you know, around the same era, everybody trying to copy Al Jurgensen's snare sound, uh, 
you know, from his processed drum machine snares on the uh, Psalm 69 album. Everybody was trying to figure out how he got that snare sound. What is it? What combination of sounds and effects and frequencies is he using here to get that immense snare sound? Everybody was chasing it. And it's the same with Pantera sound. For a while, everybody was chasing that Pantera sound. That's a great point. And and we don't, we haven't really talked about it that much on the show, but at the time, especially like in the eighties and early nineties and stuff, and I'm sure still somewhat today too, although I feel like guys are more open to discussing it. There was a lot of secrecy about how you got your particular sound. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, and so like, I remember that was always a thing with like George Lynch from Doc and like, how does he get that guitar tone? How does he get it to sound like that? We talked about uh, Vinny Apice and his drums. He held the sticks backwards and that's how he got such heavy, you know, uh, heavy sound out of, out of yeah. his set and stuff like that. So I, it's, I, it's I think you're right to people, see the tricks. People are generally more open about it now. And I think that's partly because you can replicate almost anything in software now. Right. So there's just no point in, you know, in not discussing that sort of stuff because right. it is almost child's play to get somebody else's sound yeah. now. You just can hack it now, you know, yeah. in a way that you couldn't do that before. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I, you, so it sounds like actually then you started listening to Pantera before me, which is something that you probably didn't expect <laughs> to be the case. Uh, no, because, because this I, album came out in 92. Yeah. But I first heard mouth for war on MTV or a third and saw, and immediately you know, that it was a kind of like just complete, what the fuck amazing moment. Um, because yeah, I'd heard nothing like it before. And so I went back and grabbed Cowboys from hell and listening to those two albums together a lot <laughs> over the, over the following time period. Sure. It just immediately made me a fan um, because it was like nothing I had heard before. It was like nothing most people had heard before, you know, heavy as hell. Um, and also a kind of antidote, what you was, what we were saying about them being the sort of flag bearers for metal yeah. at that time. There was kind of an antidote to not just grunge, but to the industrial yep. movement that was sweeping metal. Now, I like industrial music a lot. I like it just fine. Plenty of it you'll find in my record collection. But I hated it at the time. I know you did. <laughs> but I had already been a hardcore goth since like 86 87 so an industrial really is just kind of a heavy metal version of goth i mean it really is it's goth music with heavier guitars uh you know you go back and listen to ministry and early nine inch nails stuff and they are basically just goth albums that have got quite a bit of electronics and really heavy guitars whereas this you know cowboys and vulgar display groove metal was genuinely new and different and it it sounded amazingly fresh and yeah and just really fucking heavy um at the time like as you said you know because there was so much that was changing and and i'm i don't think i'm that far off in terms of when i really clicked with pantera because it was the same thing when we saw mouth for war that was a holy shit moment yeah, it really that was. was like, and and more than that, it was a oh, thank God! Like it was one of those moments of like, oh, thank God, somebody's still playing this freaking kind of music. <laughs> like it, it was, well, and I remember and with an attitude, right? And if I remember correctly, I believe that uh, the other album that came out this year that really stood out to me too was Megadeth's Countdown to Extinction, which people constantly argue about Rust in Peace versus Countdown to Extinction as far as Megadeth's two sort of uh, where it all came together albums. But those were the two albums that kind of got me through 
was uh, this one, but but that one came out in the summer. So this came out first because this came out in February of 92. So it was halfway through my senior year of high school. That's when this album came out. And it was Mouth for War that was like the, oh, we knew who Pantera was, but this was like, holy shit. Right. Um, See, so I don't think is... I even knew who Pantera was when I when I saw the Mouth for War video and I was just like, who? is this where have they well, been all my life <laughs> and even this is such a difference from cowboys from hell i mean this particular song right, yeah, is yeah, very yeah. different from cowboys from hell so you it's almost sounds like it's a different band yeah i guess i guess i can see that yeah it's uh but yeah it just the, the effect and you know for younger listeners who weren't there or weren't into metal at the time it is hard to explain just what an effect and this is why you know once again this is why i chose this album to talk about and not sure. cowboys and not vulgar dis- uh sorry not far beyond and not power metal even though it's so great <laughs> right because <But> <laughs> I mean, Cow- cowboys from hell absolutely was the first album where you know the groove metal sound surfaced no question um and far beyond driven is was their most successful i mean christ far beyond driven debuted at number one on the billboard chart yep have you listened to that album (laughs) that was number one that debuted at number one that is which is interesting right because it's always the album after your best album that that, a lot of times that becomes (laughs) right like in terms of the success because everybody's yeah yeah because um, by then everybody's already listening so they're waiting for the next album yeah so you know that was far and away that's their best known album in terms of the mainstream. Um, one thing I would just want to give a one, quick heads up to, too. Go on. Uh, no, go ahead, and I'll jump I, in after. I was just going to say, but this is the one that's, that was influential. This is the one that actually changed everything. Because, like I say, it's really hard to overstate when this album hit, and especially things like the videos for Mouth for War and Walk, which were in really fucking heavy rotation on MTV and music video shows and what have you. And frankly, the songs were in heavy rotation on metal radio and in metal clubs and what have you, it is, they had such an impact. It is really hard to overstate how everybody suddenly wanted to be Pantera. Yes. I would, uh, I would throw one more band into that discussion and that is suicidal tendencies slash infectious grooves because infectious grooves came out in 91 and suicidal, uh, lights, camera revolution was 1990 uh, and also Controlled by Hatred was 1989. And I think that they were probably the only other band that I can think of off the top of my head that was doing something that would be considered to be groove at that particular time and, and melding it with that sound. Although for uh, Suicidal and for Infectious Groove, it was more punk groove as right, opposed and, to metal groove. And that's the thing. I, I agree with you, except the Suicidal, and I was aware of Suicidal, but Suicidal just weren't as heavy. You know, they had the groove right. and they were definitely, they, yes. you know, sort of definitely rocked out and they were heavier than, I don't know, you know, Tom Petty or whatever. Sure. <laughs> but Mike Weir's vocals, though, are, don't have the right. same effect well, and in, get, in that way And the way guitars weren't, didn't have yeah. that crunch and they just weren't as heavy, whereas Pantera, you know, melded that the groove with absolute right. inarguable heaviness. With suicidal and infectious grooves, it was Raptor Hilo that uh, brought yeah. that. Yeah. You know that really introduced that to their music, and then um, so so yeah. Whereas these guys were, it was all of them that sort of brought that together. So yeah, yeah. It's uh, one one sort of memory I have uh, of how sort of big they were was I've mentioned before the gig where I saw 
in 94 when I saw Paradise Lost and Sepultura play at Rock City in Nottingham. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, fantastic gig, one of my favourite gigs of my life, just amazing. Uh, while we were all just filing in and waiting for the bands, they were playing music over the PA. Uh, you know, and they were just playing modern metal records. And at one point, and bear in mind, all the house lights are on. This is not like a sort of, and it's two o'clock in the afternoon or whatever. You know, this is not <laughs> um, a sort of nightclub feel or right, whatever. Right. Uh, and fucking hostile came on and oh, the man. entire crowd went mental, absolutely mental. I couldn't, I mean, you know, I, and I was as well, but I couldn't believe that like I was surrounded by basically thrash and gothic metal fans yep. myself included and there wasn't a single person on that floor who wasn't moving when fucking hostile came on and, I, right. and it, it was at that point that i was like oh shit like i mean pantera by that point were already they were on the cover of kerrang it felt like every other week you right. know, it was clear that they were a big band but i think it was that moment that really brought home to me oh shit they are they're not just big they're fucking huge yep Everybody loves Pantera. And there was a period where it felt like everybody loved this band. Yes. And and I remember them saying, um, where the heck was it? It was, they had just come off of, I think it was Rex that said in an interview, they had just played 338 days on the Cowboys from Hell tour. Oof. Think about that. Holy 338 shit. days. They had a couple, maybe three weeks off, and they went right into the studio to record vulgar display of power and so what rex was saying in this interview was that he said we were red hot at that particular point in time i mean talk about battle tested they have been out touring the hell out of this album just blowing stuff up and then they go right into the studio so they were a unit you know they were tight going in um which kind of gives you some context for where they were at mentally and just you know physically as a band yeah. going into the studio to record this album like they were they were a unit uh, and they always um, had been one of their strengths even back to cowboys one of their strengths and rex again has talked about this in interviews was that they played live so much that they were just incredibly tight and that's how they right. got that ridiculously tight rhythm section sound between rex and vinnie just because they played together all the time. It was just oh, for sure. literally just practice. I mean, and that's the thing with their sound. You can you can hear that between drum and guitar, there's an interplay between them that you almost don't hear anywhere else. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, yeah, that yeah. They, they have a, a particular sound, and Vinny, the way he will follow uh dime bag a lot of times on some of these songs and and just sort of uh you know like he's basically doing fills sometimes that just accentuate whatever the riff is and stuff like yep, that it's just yep. really it's an interesting interplay that you don't often hear because a lot of times the drums are setting the tone and leading and establishing the rhythm and here uh he he would let the guitar establish that a lot of times and sort of follow that or accentuate that and stuff like that and it's really great well and talking about rex's bass i mean there are man there are times it's very easy to listen to quite a few Pantera tracks and go, where's the bass, you know, and not realize that half of what you think is the guitar sound is actually Rex. And this is what I mean, again, because they are, he, he is such a good player and they were so tight that it's not until you get one of these. And there are a few of these on this album. Thank goodness. It's not until you get one of those breaks where dime is off 
doing a solo and Rex yes, is just and playing it yeah. and there's no rhythm guitar support in it it's right. just Rex and then you go oh shit there's the bass he was yep. there the whole time <laughs> whereas uh, to go back to what we talked about earlier with Randy Rhodes and his guitar tone you know uh, Bob Daisley wasn't doing that no he was all Randy's over the fucking t- place yeah. you know exactly <laughs> whereas here you have Rex basically providing the bottom end of a lot of Dimebag stuff yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and and this is why I'm sure why you mentioned the the similarities between Dimes' guitar tone and Randy Rhodes because Dimes' guitar tone was really just all treble, massively, yeah, uh, high end, almost no bottom end, and all of the bottom end. And you heard this if you've ever seen recordings of them live, or if you ever saw them live, you know this that as soon as they weren't playing the same thing, as soon as Dimes started playing on his own whether it's rhythm or solo, you could really tell yeah. the difference. Like, oh shit, there is no... Which I love. Right, there is no bottom like, end on that guitar sound. It's all wrecks. It's like watching a motorcycle go up a ramp, right? <laughs> and then it just... And then like when the solo hits is when he the ramp drops out and he's just airborne. And that's how I feel. Like the Rex's bass provided a launching point for when Vinny would... Well, I mean, when uh, Dimebag would go off and do a solo. And he would just sort of keep the rhythm going at the same time. It's to me, it just had this vaulting effect of like the it made the solo pop that much more, you know? Yeah, they they were just such a unit, which is why. And just to sort of briefly get into some later history, which is why Damage Plan, the album that uh, Vinnie Paul and Dime formed after Pantera, you know, officially yep. split, basically, um, it's a Damage Plan album is a fine album. It's there's nothing wrong with it, but it does sound like kind of Pantera like they became right. one of the bands that were copying Pantera. It right. sounds like anyway. And a lot of that is because the, the, you know, again, the vocals are fine, but they're not Phil and the bass Bob Ziller on the bass is fine, but he ain't Rex and he doesn't right. have the same interplay with dimes guitar that Rex did. And so, yeah, again, it's this whole, it really was these four guys together as a unit was kind of unique. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, just before we start getting into, you know, the individual tracks and stuff like that, a couple other things to think about is we we tend to think of that time as almost kind of a dark period for the metal that we sort of grew up, at, uh, you know, or I did at least grow up listening to. But I was looking at 1992 as a year in releases and you had uh, Iron Maiden's Fear of the Dark, you had Alice in Chains' Dirt, you had Motorhead's March or Die, you had Testament's The Ritual, you had the first Body Count album. You had Exodus's Force of Habit. Uh, you had Crimson Idol from Wasp, which a lot of people consider to be their best album. Uh, and Countdown to Extinction and Danzig Three, I believe, all came out in that same year. Is Danzig Three um, the one with tracks like Mother and stuff? I think or was so. That, or was that Danzig? I'm not 4? a big Danzig guy, but I just kind of looked up 1992 as a year in releases, and it, right. and it was better than I thought it was because I just. In, in my head, it was like there was nothing else that, you know, that came out outside of the Megadeth and the, um, but I didn't realize Dirt came out that year too. Yeah. Oh, Danzig Although 3 was, that was, was How the Gods Kill. Uh, okay. So I think it might actually be Danzig. In fact, it might be Danzig 1 that I'm thinking of. Uh, oh, yeah. Danzig 2 had Her Black Wings, which got a lot of play on MTV. Um, yeah. I was never into Danzig. I, I'm still not particularly into them, but I had friends who were big Danzig fans. And in fact, um, uh, Twist of Cain, 
which is the first track on their first album, was a track that w- me and one of my old bands used to regularly cover just because it's really easy. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, interesting fact, too, about that particular time. Uh, Vinnie Paul related a story, and Dave Mustaine has told this story as well, about how Dimebag almost joined Megadeth. I was going to ask if you knew about that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so it was, uh, I think, right before Rust in Peace. They had just hired Nick Menza, but they had not yet hired Marty Friedman. And I want to say it was Ellefson that ended up putting them in touch, and Mustaine essentially offered Dimebag Daryl a spot in Megadeth, and Dime said, you know, uh, I'd love to do that, but I have to, you got to take my brother too. Right. We're a package. Yeah. Yep. And because they had already hired Nick, he had just hired Nick Menza. Um, Dave said no, and that was it. And so Pantera continued to go in their direction and Megadeth continued to go in their direction. And arguably, I think both bands were better off for that because you had Marty Friedman come into, you know, Megadeth to form what a lot of people think is the quintessential lineup of Megadeth. And of course we get what, you know, Pantera's future output would be too. But interesting how those, things almost happen. And there's so yeah, many stories yeah. like that in the metal world because oh, those circles were super stuff. small. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean, just look at the whole formation of Megadeth, right? So, um, and that's that's the last time I'll mention if you're doing the Megadeth drinking game, that's the last time I'll, <laughs> I'll mention uh, Megadeth in but this also, episode. But. but also, I mean, like, what a guy. Like, what a guy to be offered a slot in, in one was, of the big four. What was already one of the biggest thrash metal bands in the world and say... Only if you have take my brother as well. Like you know, me yep. and my brother, we go, we do everything together. We'll come and join your band, but only together. Well, we're not going to do that. Okay, well then I'm not going to join your band. What a fucking guy! Holy yep. shit! You know how and many even Mustaine in recounting that story? Uh, it's not recounted as a bad story. It's recounted as a you know Dave. This was like, is and how we just tight these Mensa. guys were. Yeah, like it's just amazing. And you know y- there are many. I mean, pretty much nobody ever had and certainly now after his death has a bad word to say about uh dime like you know dime was pretty much universally loved in the world of metal vinnie paul not quite so much you know a bit of a divisive figure much like phil anselmo um but regardless of what you may think of those men just holy crap you know, to to the the bond they as brothers that they clearly had. That's just, I think that's amazing. Yeah, absolutely, dude. And a couple other quick uh, facts before we get into the track by track. Uh, you know, I mentioned how they had played thirty three hundred thirty eight days when they were recording this album. Uh, Terry Date, who was the producer on it, said that uh, Phil Anselmo broke a lot of chairs in the recording of this album because he they would do things for so many takes to try and get the exact emotion that they wanted to get for a particular song with the vocals and stuff like that. And it was said that the only guy who broke as many chairs as Phil did during the recording of this album in the past was Chris Cornell, <laughs> wow. which I thought was interesting. Right. Um, right. Because you not don't usually think of Chris think Cornell of... as a guy. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and uh, what else did they say? Oh, and Rex was talking. I thought this was interesting. He was talking about sort of Pantera's rise to, stardom at this particular time and he he, the way he described it is he said we stepped through a crack he said you had what was going on with nirvana in that scene and you had metallica just coming off the black album and he kind of you know the way he thinks about it is they sort of came through the middle of those two goalposts you know what i mean at a time where the black album created an opening for a band that was unashamedly still heavy metal 
and and wasn't grunge. And so he basically described them as, you know, stepping through that. And then they went on to talk about the whole, you know, kind of carrying metal through that particular period of time, which is what a lot of the, uh, a lot of other people see them as doing as the ones who sort of put the genre on their back and carried it through a particular period. Um, and the other thing that I thought was interesting that um, Terry Date said about Dimebag, he said, Dime was tormented by this concept of he was always going for a particular sound or a particular note or a particular feel, and he could never find it 100%. And that was kind of his mindset. He was always sort of chasing this, how it felt in his head, you know, or how he pictured it in his head, and he never quite was able to get exactly what he wanted. And I think that kind of gives you some insight into the ferocity with which he plays you know, and just the, uh, just the, the complete, the way he attacks the guitar. Um, and I'm sure a lot of artists would probably describe their creative process like that, but, but this was someone else basically describing how they perceived the way that Dime chased that, that perfect song, the pursuit of perfection. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. And things will Um, never be perfect. Like it will never. And yeah, this is where any artist, any writer, artist, musician, whatever will always, will tell you the same thing. You know, what ends up as the result, as your output or whether it's on the page or on tape or whatever is never, it's never as good as what you imagined in your head. (laughs) It just never is. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And so, um, so yeah, that's a, so again. Go check out that that Loudwire uh, documentary. It's only like fifteen minutes long altogether, but it, it offers some some interesting conversations about the album. Yeah, to, uh, talking about grunge, one of the other quick things that we should mention is uh, again for for younger listeners, perhaps um, if you're wondering when people in heavy metal all started cutting off their hair, it was this. It was basically yep. Phil essentially made it okay for lead singers in metal bands to not have hair down to their waist and still yep. headbang and look like hard motherfuckers because that's exactly what he did. And it was almost like a, almost like a sigh of relief because all these guys who were getting on a bit and some of them starting to lose their hair, uh, you know, Mr. Halford included, uh, suddenly it was okay. It was all right. right for them to just chop it all off. And plenty of us did believe you me. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, we mine, mine wasn't that. specifically a fill. I had I had chopped my hair off a, a few months earlier, but yeah, you're absolutely right. That's when the look changed. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly, it was okay to be in a metal band and not have long hair. And that sounds silly now in a modern context, but back in the early '90s, if you were in a metal band, you were expected to have hair down to your waist. That's just yep. how it was. That's just how it was. Yeah, crazy. So let's let's get into the album uh so this is it's 11 tracks long 53 minutes which is you know it's getting up there it's quite a bit longer than some of the albums that we've definitely a solid uh, covered you know full album oh yeah totally yeah yeah um uh and an average track length is also you know it's kind of all over the place because there are some i don't think there are any that are less than oh no there is Fucking Hostile is less than three minutes. So I know. There's, there's one track that's less than three minutes. There's a few that are less than four minutes, and then most of them come somewhere between four, five, and six minutes. Right. So they do kind of verge on the slightly longer side. Um, but most of them, I won't say all of them, <laughs> but most of them don't feel 
like, you know, they don't feel like sort of doomy epic tracks or anything. Right. And, and, you know, because they are following, because they're solos in most Pantera songs, that's where that's true, some yes. of that length goes because they, they really let, you know, Dimebag do his thing. Yeah. How, how could you not? <laughs> I, I totally agree. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons that I love this band is that they, uh, they let him do his thing and it doesn't feel out of place. Like you said, it doesn't feel like it drags the song out or that it's sort of needless noodling as, right. uh, as has been said before. Yeah, no, that that's, I mean, you know, my sort of my tastes in guitar solos are well established on here, but I would never accuse dime of, of pointless noodling and fret. I mean, there's plenty of fret wanking, but it's all good and it's all sort of serves the song. And yeah, you know, uh, I'm not a sort of, not all of his solos make me go like, wow, fucking A, what an amazing solo. But they're all good, and some of them do. Like, you know, some of his solos are genuinely just amazing and uh, both he well, reminds me both well-performed and, you know, musically fit really well with the track. I agree. And he reminds me a lot of Zach Wilde. Not necessarily in his guitar tone, but in the way that he plays with a lot of bends and and, you know, he he really attacks the guitar. Yeah. And so as opposed to like a uh, Randy Rhodes, who who certainly did a lot of bends and stuff like that, but was very sort of classically technical. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Um, Dime I, kind of, I, <laughs> or I won't say he introduced the string bend to metal because obviously that's not, you know, you can go all the way back to Tony Iommi bending the string at the start of Iron Man and stuff, but he really popularized it during this era of metal. Because there are so many bends, and the th- I think the thing is, bending uh, strings during solos. Of course, everybody has always done that, but bending them as part of your regular rhythm, right? That was really unusual, and Dime did that a lot, and you can really hear in a lot of the music that followed in this era, people doing that and experimenting with strange tunings and bending strings as part of the rhythm riff and stuff. Well, and the reason I compare him to Zach Wilde, too, is that because a lot of, you know, guitar players do, like, bend strings in solos, but it's usually, like, at very specific points or at the end to accentuate, right. you know, the solo or something like that, whereas with the Zach Wilde and with Dimebag, like, it's just part of how they play. So it's constant. Yeah. You know, like, they're constantly doing it, which, which I would imagine, me not being a guitar player, makes their stuff incredibly difficult to play a lot of times because there's so much of that. Yeah, I would I would assume so. Uh, In order to always, get that exact sound of the solo, you know what I mean? Right, well, and there's always, whenever you bend, there's always the danger of accidentally ringing other strings that are you yeah. know, sort of being contacted and what have you. So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, as we've discussed before, I am no virtuoso, and I would certainly never even attempt to try and play a, a dime solo. <laughs> right. Um, but yes, I would imagine that that makes them more difficult than a solo that, contains only string bends as you say at the end of phrases to accentuate stuff right exactly and there's so, it's just kind of constantly woven in and out yeah yeah right in and out is a really good way of putting it yeah so um yeah i mean as i said i chose this album because this is the one that changed metal you know cowboys had been pointing in this direction but it wasn't a massive hit uh and uh you know by the time we got to far beyond driven they were already the biggest metal band on the planet bar uh, Metallica. So Volga Display is the album that really broke them. It was a huge hit. Tracks got loads of exposure and heavy rotation, spawned 
so many imitators you can't even imagine. <laughs> well, and Phil has said it's the most important record we've ever done because this is the record that truly established what sound most people associate with yes. Pantera. Like up until then, they were evolving to this. Yes. And with this, this is where they said, this is who we are. Yeah, absolutely. No, no argument there at all. So, yeah. uh, all right. So let's get onto it. So track one, it opens with the classic Mouth for War. This, the imagery of the cover of someone getting punched in the face meshes perfectly with this first song, right? Because this song just punches you right in the face. Yes. I mean, just from the opening seconds of this song, it is clear that this record is going to be ruthless and relentless. And I remember, although I hate to bring up the Megadeth drinking game again, I will mention them one more time. (laughs) This song features one of those, oh shit moments where you hear a song and the first time you hear it you're like holy shit and it's the harmonics right where it basically sounds like he's scraping this industrial sort of scraping sound when the riff changes and at that the first time i heard that that was the jump off the couch you know jump up in the car scream holy shit when you heard that and it reminded me that uh, the other album of this year that that stood out for on is there's a moment in the megadeth song skin of my teeth where at the end of the solo, there's like this uh, sort of muted pick scraping thing that they do at the end of the solo to accentuate it. That is a holy shit moment. But this this for this song was like, that just blew me out of the water the first time that I heard it. So for, as far as an opening track, like this one is just a stellar opening track. It, re- it really is. I mean, yeah, you know, that opening chugging riff obviously is like really sort of hard and, and powerful, but that in itself isn't, you know, you could have heard that. I mean, it's down-tuned quite a bit more than most bands would have, but you could have heard that on, you know, you could imagine hearing that on other sure. albums that have come out before, but it's the change from there, and it's the bit in the video where Dime, you know, just sort of like slams down his foot and starts playing the main riff, and from there into that main riff that 
where it feels like his fingers are just sliding all over the keyboard. Oh, uh, I'm so glad you said that, dude. Sorry. Um, that feels like how he plays. Like it, it, there's so many time, and he does do that a lot in his songs. But yeah, yeah. everything feels very, and that just lends itself to the groove because that whole groove of that riff just sounds very fluid. Yeah, it, there are so many songs, classic Pantera songs, where it feels like Dime's fingers are literally just sliding constantly around the fretboard and. The other thing that it did uh, and that contributed to the sound that then developed from there, you know, so in this era from people imitating Pantera was the lack of palm muting, the lack of chugging. Like you've got that opening with, lo- and you know, God knows they could thrash and chug with the best of them. Um, but you've, the main riff has no palm muting at all. It is all just open chords, just sliding around all over the place. And, and that, then the harmonics, which right, is just and, like, but that for the time was really unusual in metal. That was right, really right. an odd thing to do. You only heard that generally in choruses of glam metal songs where you'd get open chords ringing out, you know? Uh, right. Because at that time, everybody worshipped was worshipping Metallica up until, you know, 1990. And that was all really, really heavy, fast, palm-muted stuff. And so to have something that was so heavy, but actually had these ringing open chords during the main riff and not, you know, some kind of like soaring chorus was just again really unusual and quite innovative for the time but this is where there is no mouth for war without power metal you know what i mean this is where this like you said some of the stuff that was evident in glam metal at the time that you wouldn't hear on a metallica record is what helped inform what they're doing here and so they just had tools in their toolbox that other bands didn't have and and to me, like that's all part of that sound is that you can you hear it in different places. And at this point, if you just picked up this album and you hadn't heard any of their you know glam metal stuff, then you might not attribute it to that. But to me, it's those little constant nods to their roots that even though they didn't talk about it and even though they had established a new image, like the music is what it is because of that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. These these influences all like coming together to to make this new thing right um yeah but i one of the other things i love about this track is and we've talked about this before with you know opening tracks and albums it's so important it establishes the feel of the album and it makes absolutely no bones that this is gonna be a harder more grinding and less thrashy album than cowboys from hell because cowboys from hell you know it it had those those halford bits and those judas priesty bits but it also was very thrashy it had lots of almost traditional thrash stuff in it this album really not so much there's a lot more grind and groove and i think when you hear phil scream revenge to start with i think it's pretty clear that we're gonna we're we're in for it you're in for a ride yeah you know and just the the pre-chorus bones and traction hands break to hone raw energy bold Bold and and disastrous disastrous. yeah (laughs) my ears can't hear what you say to me and to me that is one of my favorite pantera lines ever oh yeah my ears can't hear what you say to me and then boom right into the chorus hold your mouth for the war use it for what it's for speak the truth about me determined and this song um as you can hear my dog barking in the background dog agrees yeah (laughs) yeah my dog totally agrees with that this song i think that phil Oh, no, it was Walk. Yeah, there, there was a thing. A lot of the lyrics on this album are about what people were saying about Pantera yes. at the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and how oh, no, they were. This is just totally a sort of, this is just totally a braggadocio track. 
you know, th- this is like, we are fucking awesome. And we it, are awesome. You know, we're the best. Watch your mouth. <laughs> if you're going to talk shit about us, because you better be able to back it up. Yeah. Uh, that kind of thing. But as we talked about before with them sort of carrying the banner of metal at this time, this was a, a sort of a, a call to arms for metal fans. Oh, totally. Of yeah. Like, you know, as fans of a, of a genre that a lot of people thought was dying at this point or was fading out or the music that we had grown up with was kind of no longer welcome anymore. Here you had Pantera that was saying, oh, hell no. Yeah. We are. Yeah. We're going to march forward with this. So everybody get together and realize that they're not going to, uh, they're not going to drive us away from the music that we love. Well, and that other classic line in this track, the releasing of anger can better any medicine under the sun. I mean, yep. you know, if that's not a perfect encapsulation of why we all love metal, you know, and right. that, that why catharsis. we do this show, why we're yeah. talking about it right now. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, I, I've always loved that line. Um, the, by the way, this is, uh, one of my go-to end of night karaoke tracks as well. Uh, you can always, nice. you as odd as it may sound to people, you can always find this and, uh, normally cemetery gates on 99% of modern karaoke machines. Uh, yep. and so, yeah, you know, I will always dial this one. It has to be end of night cause it completely destroys my voice. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I will always dial yeah, this, this is one the up. song you put on when you want to bring it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh the i mean we talked about the intro and the main riff is just crushing and the chorus is amazing and then you get that coda and we've talked before about like the typo negative album if you remember was right. when this first really came up about songs that just change just suddenly change like a third of the a third of the way from the end suddenly it becomes a completely different song and that's what happens here you get this m- massively sped up coda much thrashier and faster and Vinny, you know, banging away on the drums, uh, almost as if they're kind of just showing, by the way, you know, yeah, we're doing this groove metal thing, but we can still thrash. Right. Absolutely. I mean, this song is just an absolute statement song that lets you know what you can expect for the rest of the record. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and really sets the stage for track two, a new level. is one of my favorite Pantera tracks ever. Uh, I love the opening riff, those rising chords, and then into the sort of chugging, driving main riff. Uh, I think you can see a bit of Sabbath influence in this track, and maybe that's why I like it so much. Um, well, and I'm going to validate what you just said about it's, you know how you feel about it, because I think it was Rex that said 
that this is the song that set the tone for the whole album. Oh, and they wow. were talking about, in this Loudwire documentary, which you can watch on YouTube, they were talking about how Phil was really frustrated at this point. He wasn't getting what he wanted. And I guess Terry, the producer, had told him that he didn't want him smoking pot during the recording of the album. <laughs> but Phil was so frustrated with where things were going. They went outside and smoked a joint, and they came back in and put together a new level. And Rex said that song set the tone for the entire album. Right. And well, and lyrically, it's amazing as well. I mean, again, it, it's another braggadocio track. It's just like, we're amazing. Uh, but it's done so well lyrically. Uh, and Phil's performance on it, I think is, you know, that's amazing to, if, if he did this while completely stoned out of his mind, because it's a fantastic performance. Everything in this track is, uh, and it does kind of get overlooked a little bit because of where it comes in the album and the, and because side one of this album, as it were, is so packed with great songs. Um, I agree. I think it sometimes gets lost in the discussion of, uh, but when you think about it, when you think about what Rex said about this sort of setting the tone for the whole album, it really does. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I just, I love it so much. And it's Everything very sludgy about it. too. It's very, um, yes, it's just very heavy. Which I think, uh, you know, may be one of the reasons, again, like I said, I think you can see a bit of Sabbath influence in it. And maybe that biases me towards it. Maybe that's why it's one of my favorite tracks. But every aspect of this track, like literally every performance, every part of the music, Phil's vocals, the lyrics, I just absolutely love it. Uh, I, I don't know whether I can genuinely say it's my favorite track in the album but it's certainly up there it's one of my favorite tracks without a question i will i always love listening to this track and i think it's a perfect second track and uh, i like how the spoken word stuff goes from ear to ear yes like when you're listening to it in stereo i think that works really well um well, i pa- like the fact that this song as opposed to a lot of other songs in this album that have uh slower tempo verses and faster tempo choruses this song is kind of the opposite of that yeah where it, it sort of slows down which i think really drives home the chorus even more right of being because confident. it feels heavier yeah absolutely yeah um, um, well and the one of the things that i thought pantera were always pretty good about was that they did do bits of studio trickery you know they cl- they used the studio uh right right you know, right but not so much that it became that it became too perform it live right yeah yeah Uh, and and the yeah the panning of the spoken word bits from phil you know kind of matches that there's a you know yeah oh let's bounce this between left and right sure okay you know but nothing more than that right (laughs) let's not go crazy (laughs) yeah let's not go crazy because we this is a song that you know we're going to play live so and they uh, yeah and play live a lot um so yeah as i say that's just but i think uh i said that i think it's a great track too and i don't think you know what I mean by that is I don't even though I love it I don't think this would have made a good opening track. No, no, I don't think so either because it doesn't. Its tempo doesn't punch like right. the, the other. This is this is a song that makes you. Uh, the first one sort of punches you in the face, and and this one almost kind of grapples with you. You know, it kind, it right. kind of it kind of forces <laughs> you down. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that this is definitely. I think it fits better here, but you're right. It tends to sometimes get overlooked because it's sandwiched between two songs that people consider among the greatest songs that Pantera has ever written. So it's tough to, uh, it's tough to get its notice here. But I think also that Vinny's symbol work here kind of really drives the groove. This is a a song where I think that uh, his drums really stand out on this song. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, everybody's performance on it, I think, is is amazing. Um, but you're right, it is sandwiched between two of Pantera's best-known tracks, and yeah. arg- arguably, you know, many people would say they're two best songs ever. Um, and so, yeah, so let's go to track three, which is, of course, Walk. You can rec- almost anyone will recognize this riff right as soon yeah. as it starts playing. Yeah. Uh, when the album first came out, this was probably my favorite song on the album. Um, and this is the one where Phil said, I wrote this when Pantera were first getting a lot of attention. I came back from touring and my friends had taken it upon themselves to think that I had changed as a person into this big rock star. Walk was me telling them to shove that attitude up their ass. Yep. And, and that comes across. I mean, totally. It's, uh, you know, the lyrics are very unambiguous, I think, in that respect. It's uh, and fun fact, too. Uh, it says the main riff was written while the band was warming up for a show on guitarist Dimebag Daryl's practice amp when Phil Anselmo shouted, we got to write some shit for this new album. Yeah. Dime immediately started playing the opening riff and Vinny tapped the drums on the wall. They were filming uh, for the home video and caught it all on tape to remember the riff. Yeah, I mean, it's this track is a masterclass in how simplicity can deliver a massive riff, and you can you can nail this riff to the floor and hang an entire song off of it. That's a terrible Absolutely. metaphor, but you know what I mean. It's just it is it. so big, so strong. This riff can hold up the entire song and kind of does hold up the entire song. There is very little variation in this song and it doesn't matter because that riff is just so fucking amazing and then just think about like let's just say imagine they just released these three songs as an ep oh god almighty (laughs) right i mean just these three songs are like you're three songs in and you're like jesus christ this album is freaking brutal yeah what is happening yeah yeah it's, I mean, just un- unbelievable. Like it's unreal. It, like I said, it's, it's just unrelenting. Yeah, uh, and this is an, another track where everybody's just on top form. Uh, you know, Vinny, Vinny's drums are just enough on this. Like he right. doesn't go crazy, but he goes crazy enough. Um, and, and this his is build in the beginning. Ah, it's just you know, amazing. Bi- yeah. It's just freaking great. Yeah. And this is one of the songs where Rex holds down the rhythm while 
Dimebag oh, goes sure. off and delivers a fantastic solo. Yep. Uh, it's both yep. technical and it's got real swing and groove. Um, and again, this is where I feel like it's almost like him, you know, coming off of a ramp or a trampoline or something, right? Where, yeah. you know, you just have uh, Rex rolling into that rhythm and keeping that going as he's just going to freaking town in the solo. Yeah. Well, and then you've got that variation after the solo, that variation at the end where he chugs out a version of the intro riff where that bends the string. I mean, like, what? Yep. <laughs> it's just. Yeah. Genius, absolute genius. Um, this was this was a track that w- one of my old bands, uh, the same band actually, uh, that we used to cover the Danzig track. We also used to cover this because again, it is so simple, uh, and yet it is so powerful and such. Right. And it's a really fun track to play as well. Like really, just we played it a lot, <laughs> almost as much as Pantera did themselves probably when they were on tour. And it's really, really fun to play. It's, yeah, uh, I mean, I have nothing bad to say about this song. It's a classic. Yeah, it's a bona fide classic. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, well, and you talk about like a three-track EP, but hang on, hold that thought, because imagine if it had been a four-track EP with the next track, which is, of course, like imagine ending with track four, fucking hostile. One, two, three, four! This is my favorite Pantera song, probably. Uh, actually, it's my favorite. It's definitely my favorite song on this album. Really? Wow. Yes. It's fucking awesome. It this is awesome, but I wouldn't so expect perfect. you. I w- you know, I, I can't. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because it's totally hair metal mixed in with the thrash. It definitely, to me, is a total nod to their roots at this point, especially if you listen to power metal. Um I love the way that Dime plays the chord. Like, he does this thing where, uh, when they're singing, let me pull up the lyrics here. When they're singing, um, do, 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 to see, to bleed, cannot be taught, where he's going, he's sliding between those. But then, so he does that for the first two times, and then the third time, he he hits each one individually. And that, to me, is just so fucking awesome. I <laughs> love that, and he does that. And it was it was the first time I noticed that. And then every subsequent listen of the album, like he does that on so many songs that you might not even notice it when he's. But he does this thing where, as you mentioned before, like it sounds like he's just sliding between chords and stuff like that. And he does do that, but then he'll switch it up. Yeah, and yeah, that's, no, that, that's what I love. That's definitely because like, it drives sort of... home as it crashes into the chorus here. Uh, 
And then, of course, he's just screaming fucking hostile at the top of his lungs. Like, his, you could just hear the veins popping out of his yeah. neck and, like, his eyeballs ready to explode <laughs> out of his head. Like, and is there anything greater than the ending of this song? Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, for the uh, love of God. Like, this, the scream at the end of the song, it's just like, it, when this song is over, and it's over quick, it's two minutes and 48 seconds. I mean, you're at the end of the song, you're like, that might have been the heaviest song I've ever heard in my life. And it's because of his voice. Oh, yeah. Totally. Because the riff, to me, is very hair metal. Um, and the fact that he's singing probably as clean as he sings on this entire album with maybe uh, some of This Love and the last song, Hollow. It, to me, it's the perfect melding. Like th- This, to me, is the passing the torch song between what was left of the hair metal Pantera and what Pantera would become. Because to me, this song is very different than every other song on this album. It, it is. It is mainly because it's just so much faster than every yep. other track on this album. I mean, I must admit, I I wouldn't have made that connection with the sort of with the glam sound, but I can see I can see where you're coming from. Yeah, I can see that in it. But mainly, it is just so fucking fast. This track, it's it's uh, and played so cleanly despite its speed, which you know speaks to the technical prowess of. Of all of them, really. But it just melts your fucking face off this track. It's oh, just it's so, so amazing. Good. Um, I love this song. But I was going to say, you were what you said about the way that Dime played, that is very much a signature style of his. And again, you, you know, you've, it's become a lot more common in the years since to, yeah, play those open chords and sliding stuff and then to sort of tighten it up and play the same thing but chug it out with your palm muted, you know, and still keeping it heavy. He was a master of that. Um, yeah, it's like the first three times he slides it, and then the second three times when they repeat it, he hits them each individually. And yeah. it just is such an awesome... It just drives it home that much more. It's freaking great. Yeah. Uh, well, and again, talking about... Uh, I mentioned in the last one, talking about the sort of... Uh, their tendency to do a little bit of studio trickery, but not a lot. The in the chorus in this, when Phil shouts "fucking hostile," there is distortion on his voice. There, that's going oh, yeah, through yeah. a distortion pedal, just a touch, not so, not too much. You know, not Al Jurgensen levels, but just a touch of distortion to really bring out that scream. Because one of the other things distortion does is compress, so it enables the scream to just sustain, you know, and sound for longer. Um, but everybody was doing this in the early nineties. That's what got me was uh, like sort of thinking back to that time this became such a common thing and you can blame the industrial movement for this, you know, blame ministry and early nine inch nails because they were so popular. They became such a big thing uh, that suddenly everybody was experimenting with running their vocals through distortion pedals in the nineties. And yeah, you know, Pantera didn't do it a lot, but they did it occasionally and, you know, generally to really good effect. And this track is a, a perfect example of that. I think. Oh man, such a great song. So yeah, imagine your your imaginary uh Pantera EP uh that's just those four tracks. <laughs> Dude, they could have just released those four and walked away. They really could. They really and could. And been like, yeah, what do you think of that? Yeah. Like and people would have still lost their minds over it. Oh, but yeah. but I mean when you think of like <laughs> think of a of a four song run on any album. It's hard to beat. That's as heavy as this. I mean, because it's got a little bit of something for everybody there. Yep. I mean, within those four songs, you've hit 
Anybody who was ever a fan of Pantera and anybody who's a metal fan, there's something for you in those four songs. Yeah, totally. It just really great. An amazing selection. Um, and then, and then we get to track five, and it's the bastard ballad. It's this love. So what do you think about this song? I, well, on the one hand, Pantera were, to their credit, they were always pretty good about, like, their ballads were always quite heavy, you know? Yes. Uh, like, because there are some metal bands that they do the ballad and it really wasn't that heavy. It didn't sound like the rest of the album. Pantera's ballads do actually sound like Pantera. And when they get into the heavy breakdowns, you know, within those tracks, it sounds like regular Pantera stuff. So that's good. Uh, Cemetery Gates, you know, classic example of that. And and I um, always thought that that Daryl's uh, compositions were well suited to these sort of hybrid ballads yeah. that they do because he does such a great job of switching between, you know, kind of the acoustic lines and the and the the clean lines and then whatever the riff is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're well composed songs. Uh, I like the chorus. I like the overlaid vocal call and response stuff that makes it quite interesting um but what really saves this track for me is actually the syncopated middle eight rhythm that comes in at about three minutes 15 that leads into the solo yeah and they do it again at the end for the fade out that's what really saves it for me without that i wouldn't like this track as much i like the lyrics i completely agree with you i think the lyrics are great but musically that's what saves it for me because that's and the way he screams over it the first time that it happens Yeah. And almost like he screams and then screams a little bit more. Like you could almost tell like he's losing his breath. Uh, sort of. It's just awesome. Yeah. It's uh, as I say, it's not my favorite track on the album by any means. No, me but... neither. And I don't even think it's the best hybrid ballad on this album. Cause I think the last song in the album is better than this, but, um, but yeah. And, th- but this was a song I, I believe that they released as a single, correct? I think so. Yeah. 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 I think this is like the third single or something off this album. So it's, uh, it's a good song. Yeah, but yeah. I agree. It's it's that it's that middle eight man. Whew, yeah, a- yeah. Without that, I think it, it would struggle. Um, uh, but what it does do, you think it's going to fade out at the end, haha, uh, and uh, and then instead it just goes bang like yep. straight into track six, which of course is rise. Got no time to lose Your news is all 
the six, seven, eight on this album is where it stumbles for me. So oh, this, really? this for me is well, where things start to slip a little bit. Well, this would have been the last track on side A of the vinyl release. Um, yeah. Uh, well, and it was, uh, but I do remember this was late enough, if you like, in CD's lifespan that the CD version of this was by far the more heavily promoted format at the time. Uh, you know, we'd already sort of started to move because you were already by this time getting grunge bands bemoaning the loss of vinyl. Um, so most people listening to this, even at the time, I think wouldn't have experienced it as vinyl with two sides. And so, yeah, this this batch of tracks comes in the middle of right. the album. Uh, but this would actually have been the last track on side one, which I think is why this love is where it is, because they probably didn't want to end the side on the ballad. And, sure. And so instead it comes back to a nice, fast, heavy track uh, to end with. And I, I mean, the intro, I fucking love the intro. I do to too. This song. And I, yes. Like I think that the main riff that kicks in is great. And I like how the drums sort of give it this off kilter feel. Um, I think that works really well. And it's similar to a new level in that the verse is faster than the chorus. Yes. Um, so I, so I like those elements of it. To me, the chorus is just garbage. And the chorus ruins it for me. So I, I, I feel like I don't know. I really like the chorus on this one. Yeah. So, and that's where the, the song loses me. And I feel like in this middle batch of songs, they make some choices that for me, at least didn't pay off. Right. Um, and so that's where, so I, I think like this is a song that has a great riff and doesn't capitalize on it in the way that I would like it to. Uh, um, and I, it is my least favorite chorus of the album. I love, no, I like the chorus cause I love the, uh, the rhythm uh of the guitars as well in it you know no i mean not just the pre i love the pre-chorus bit you know where he ends shouting what's wrong with your mind um but literally just the chorus it's time to rise and then you get that chugging i love that rhythm uh yeah so this one really does it for me what i did want to bring up in this track however and more it's more so more evident in the next track but you can see the start of it in here is and we haven't talked about this yet, but we really can't not talk about it in this episode, is that yep. Phil Anselmo's controversial opinions, shall we say, which is, let's speak frankly, his white power shtick. And yep. I mean, I wish we didn't have to talk about it because I hate it. I wish it wasn't true, yep. but, I, but I think it's kind of undeniable at this point. You know, there are so many instances of it. Um, I mean, I also wish that he hadn't been a heroin addict, but you know, that's life. Right. Um, but I have, this is the thing, and I've mentioned this before. I have such a hard time reconciling that with his lyrics because, you know, Phil wrote all his own lyrics, uh, you know, and nobody would ever, I've never heard or read anything that suggests that he didn't write 100% of all the lyrics to all of the Pantera songs himself and can you honestly imagine him you know not can you imagine him singing anybody else's words that, well, right no. that ain't gonna happen uh, right. and, and his lyrics are all about and even this song and the next song his lyrics are all about unity and togetherness and yep. strength through working together and you know the the pre-chorus of this taught when we're young to hate one another but it's time to have a new reign of power, make pride yep. universal. It's like, how can you write lyrics like this and advocate bullshit like white power? I do not And it's not really get hard it. 
it's really hard to not have that ruin their older music, right? Yeah. Because now that you know, uh, now that you've seen enough of Phil Anselmo to know that you can't really question anymore the, some of the racist stuff that he's done, and now you go back and look at a song like this and you start to look at the lyrics and you're thinking like, what? Maybe he's only talking about one particular group unifying, you know? It's it's yeah. hard to go back and see these lyrics now and think um, that he is talking about everyone. And so there are certain songs, and this is one of them, where you're kind of like, this song feels a different way than it felt when I first listened to yeah. it, you know what I mean? But that's um, what gets me. You You have to work at not seeing them as positive songs do you know what i mean that that's the weird thing it's like if well, you... wait, my thing is like shame on him because he has now when he's revealed these uh beliefs that he holds and some of the stuff that he said in public you then make people question thing everything that you've ever done oh sure and yeah, you yeah. know and so it's just uh but you're right i mean when you t- if you just took the lyrics at face value he's talking about um about unity. every creed, every creed, and every kind, you know, coming together, uh, right? Yeah, he we've lived s- with past mistakes, and we've lived with our own. Forgive, forget, forget. Be a man, not a child. You know, um, yeah. It's just, it's absolutely. I think the is the every creed stuff actually in the next song. Is that in? Is that in? No good. I can't even remember now. No, it's um, in. He oh, says, is that in? Uh, rise? Oh, no, yeah, every creed, and every kind to give a step for strength. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's and this is what I mean. It's you know, it, right? It's basically tr- at least the first interpretation of this is that he's saying the things that are different about us is what make gives us more depth and makes us stronger. Exactly. If it, yeah. if if a surface reading of this sounded a bit racist, and you had to work hard to kind of say, oh well, actually, he just means this, that might be more understandable. But it's the other way around. I just right. <laughs> it makes no sense to me. I do not. I just don't get it. And it's, yeah, it does taint my enjoyment of Pantera these days. You know, I still, I love their music. I've always loved their music. Uh, But it's always there at the back of your mind when you're listening to it. It's, uh, and it's just disappointing, you know, for many reasons. Um, And okay, so let's, let's go on to track seven, which is uh, no good attack the radical. Better listen to a man who knows what he's saying. I see your side, 
this is a really groovy track. I love the groove riffs and the heavy yep. chugs uh, and stuff in this song. I do think it's a bit too long. I think I agree pro- with you. Probably goes on about a minute too long. Um, but once but this again, is another song where he does the slide and then individual strumming yes. of the chord thing, and I freaking love that. Yep. Yeah, I, I never mean, get sick of that. Th- th- this track is a sort of showcase of uh, of D- Dime's skills, really, in every department. Um, it's musically, it's fantastic, but again, lyrically, uh, you know, it's kind of you look at it now with a fresh perspective. But again, it's a surface reading of it is is positive. Uh, you know, you have to kind right. of twist it a bit in order to make it actually a pro racist polemic i just i do not get this man at all i don't understand uh, right I mean, you can argue that it's naive some parts of this song are kind of like politically naive i don't think it, anybody would argue with that but yeah but the surface message again is positive so i don't know man i throw up my hands in despair yeah i mean uh we'll probably never know the truth about what he was thinking, but it, wouldn't you love to know like what he was thinking as he's writing these lyrics. And then, you know, now look at some of the stuff that has come out about him, like just because you're right. I mean, what he's putting down to paper and what he's putting in these songs is seemingly the opposite message. Yeah. It's just crazy. But, yep. but yeah, musically, this is uh, a really good track. And uh, you're right. I mean, you, you talked about that sort of, uh, tracks six, seven, and eight being this sort of bit in the middle where they lose their way a bit. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I like I say musically, I like No Good just because it is quite groovy, you know, and it's a good showcase for for Dime. But I I agree, it's not my favorite song of the album. What I'm interested, however, to learn is why you think that applies to track eight, which is Live in a Hole. The note that I had here is ruins a great intro with a boring main riff and tempo change. Ah, right. Okay. That was my, that was my initial, that was my thought as I was listening to it. Cause I, what I do is I try to, after I've listened to it four or five times, I go through and I'll write just a kind of my gut take on each song. And that's what I had on this one. But again, there's elements that I like on this. There's, there's the voice box stuff. There's the wah pedal stuff. 
I like how he toggles between how dime toggles between like the sludgy sound and then that razor sharp, you know, guitar tone. So there are elements of this song that I like. But and again, when I say that six, seven, and eight is is sort of a misstep for me, it's really more about having elements of each song that I really enjoy and then feeling like it just doesn't complete the package for me. So right, it's not sure. that I that I really dislike any of these songs. It's more of like there are certain songs on this album that get it so perfect to me that when the songs come together that that are missing an element or two, they feel like a misstep to me. And it just feels to me like there's a few of these songs in a row. But again... Sure, it's disappointing in context. Correct, but still has elements that I absolutely love. And, and uh, these are none of these songs, six, seven, eight, are songs that I would ever skip as I'm because I'm not a big skip, you know, person right. anyways to begin with. But uh, these aren't songs that I'm that I'm actively avoiding. These are just songs that I feel don't necessarily live up to the rest of the album. Right. Well, and in that respect, I think I probably would agree mostly that yeah, they're you know they they're not as good as the first four tracks. <laughs> you know what is? Um, but I do. I really like this track. Uh, there is a lot for me to love in this track. There's that syncopated chugging in the intro. The tempo changes I really like. I love the sort of the way it just opens out and breathes in the main lines, and then you get a bit of groove guitar at the end of each phrase. Uh, And then there's a key change in the pre-chorus, and then the chorus is back to that syncopated chugging. That's, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff there that I like. And for me, it does come together as... Yeah, no, it's not as good as fucking Hostile or whatever, but I think it is one of the better tracks on this album. And I know that that's not a popular opinion. I know a lot of people who not dislike this track, but who, like you, are just kind of, yeah, you know, it's like not it's not one of the good tracks on the album. But I really, really like it. And part of it is where it falls, too, right? Because for me, what what I find troublesome about this song is the exact opposite of how I feel about the next song. So here in track eight in live in a hole, I have a song that I think takes a a great intro and doesn't do enough with it. Whereas with track nine, which is regular people, uh, I feel like it does the exact opposite. I feel like it builds on a great, on a great riff. You know what I mean? So I just feel like it's, it's next to a song that I think does it better. Huh? Interesting. Okay. And it gives it a different context for me. So, you know, I, I get through live in a hole and then I get to regular people, which I think has a freaking awesome riff. Stop the picture! 
And I think it builds on it, you know, like that dun 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 bam, like that's so good. Uh, that this song really is a great contrast to "Live in a Hole" for me. Right, right. I mean, I I prefer "Live in a Hole" to this track, but I do like this track a lot. I love them. I always love the main riff uh, because, yeah, that is that really. It's rocks. so groovy. Like this is yeah. another song that I feel like is has such a great groove to it for a Pantera song. You know. Yeah, uh, and the pre-chorus is so fucking heavy uh especially with the drums just driving home every single note as he's going down like there's a there's a drum beat for every single one of those notes you know and and the lyrics are a great match the whole song including the lyrics the whole song just basically sounds so goddamn angry right everything about this song is filled with so many times you practice in the mirror to be just like me but you just can't see you ain't got the balls son son. Uh, i fight for love of brother your friends fight one another yeah it's you can't see but your head's up because your head's up your ass well and you know and of course most regular people would say it's hard and any streetwise son of a bitch knows don't fuck with this right i mean but i love when he says i crush your rush i rule you fool (laughs) oh man it's uh, yeah yeah lyrically it's just it's so good and it is so angry i mean it's clearly uh you know i always took this song to basically be him again talking about those people who thought that people he was, who talk shit yeah they thought that he got above his station or whatever yep. or you know and you and i i'm sure have come across this i get this a lot as uh, a writer people assume that because i sit at a computer and type all day long that my job isn't sort of taxing and then oh. it's, it's not, if I ever say, God, I'm knackered, they're like, why all you did was sit and Dude, type all day? That is and, like, you know, it's, that's not, I'm mentally, no, okay, physically, maybe not, but I'm mentally exhausted. You know, it is, yep. it's work. And I always took this song to be kind of, you know, hitting back at those people and going, hang on a second, you know, this is actually fucking hard work. Yeah. It's people who don't understand that making stuff is hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like that, well, that whole, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, like we said, 338 days they toured on Cowboys from Hell. Right. Like if and someone can look at that and say that they're not putting in work. Yeah. And anybody who's seen a video of that era, Pantera Live, knows that Anselmo, holy shit. I mean, he was like a whirling dervish on stage. He did oh. not stand still for a second. How his voice made it from one night to another, I don't even know. I don't even know I made it from one song to another. I know. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it just, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's no wonder that the guy can barely walk now. He's got massive back problems. Well, and that's why he became a heroin addict as yep. a, you know, as a painkiller because he had such enormous, uh, back problems. And that's, you know, you watch those videos of them performing live and you're like, yeah, yeah, I can see why you got back problems. Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> it's just crazy, but holy shit. What a front man. Um, so, uh, so, okay. So now I'm really intrigued to know what you feel about this. So onto track 10 and that is by demons be driven. Yeah. 
I would say my second favorite song on the album. Really? Wow. Yes. Wow. I I honestly worried that you wouldn't like this track. I fucking love it. That might be the most evil riff I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> Isn't it? Right? It's just the whole mixture of the the chugging and then the wow. It's just so it sounds like it's crawling from the pit of hell. Right. And you know, then and, and then the sliding riffs like, to close it again. There. You don't have to Yeah, you don't have to be thrash to be brutal. Yep. This song is brutal. Back in the call, back in the call, like just freaking brutal from start to finish. This song is just absolutely brutal. Um and wouldn't it have been like a great closer to the album? Oh, like it regard, would have been. regardless of whether or not regardless you of like Hollow, yeah. Right, regardless of whether right. or not you like track 11, wouldn't this have been a fucking great way to close the oh album. My God, I'm, just, I'm constantly bemused that this isn't the last track on this album. It even feels like it. That intro and the outro make it feel to me like a closing track. I don't understand. And just some of the, uh, they're not even fills, but just some of the accents uh, and unsettling notes that Dime is playing to give this song just its hellish feel is just it th- this is a, a perfect package song. I, I freaking love this song. Well and the solo consists largely of discordant harmonics. Yep. Like the solo is, you know, not even really a solo. And that's yep. fine. I can get behind that because yeah, it is evil. This is I mean it's almost like this is their slayer tribute or something, you know? <laughs> right, but but at much slower tempo, you know what I mean? Yep. And just like proving well, that in we their don't own need style. speed to be heavy. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I just I love that outro. I absolutely love that weird five four time. Well, it's four four oh, and, yes. then, and then five four. So I suppose that would make it nine eight time. Uh, rhythm on the outro because it's just constantly catches you off guard and it's just heavy but also weird and evil and just brilliant absolutely brilliant yeah uh, nothing bad to say about this song it's freaking amazing yeah uh and and but it's not the final track it is not the album closer because we have another and that is another ballad and it is called hollow i 
Now, I think this is the better ballad of the two on the album, uh, lyrically and musically. And one of the reasons that I really like this song, and I grew to appreciate it more through subsequent listens of this album, is that it represents the end of the Pantera that I loved. Um, this right, is, to right. me is the this is the bookend of the era of Pantera that included melody. That that's how I feel about this song, and so it is. It's a very somber song. I mean, it, to me, as I read the lyrics, it's talking about like visiting a friend in the hospital who's basically catatonic. Oh, totally. And yeah, he, yeah. And he's talking about what's left inside of him. Doesn't he remember us? Can he believe me? We used to be brothers. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, a, I don't, it's I don't as know if, if this he is, were dead. I don't know if this is actually, you know, if this is autobiographical or if it's, right. you know, just a really good piece of fiction. But it yep. is, it is a really good. If it is, it's a really good piece of fiction. Like the lyrics are, yeah, fantastic and really. And just the way the acoustic, uh, you know, part melds into when it kicks in. Yes. You know, just the, it, cause it sounds like you're falling down a hole as it kind of, it just descends into it and then it bam, 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 just like yeah. the perfect, this to me is what I wished that Pantera, I wish I could capture this. Because I think it's these hybrid ballads. I think it's these, um, this melody and just like very well composed acoustical pieces meshed with the heavy, brutal stuff that they do. That is something that a lot of bands can't do and makes Pantera more well rounded than some of the other bands that were their contemporaries. And so, right. it, 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 to me, I love this stuff. And that's, right. D- Dime, if he'd wanted to could have written a whole album of nothing but just like, you know, right. like ballads, like, you know, acoustic guitar ballads or something. You you can and tell he clearly could have done that. Without a doubt. And I feel like that's where, again, their hair metal heritage it should it is something to be celebrated because it's those elements that make a song like this possible. Right, and that so make for, them a well-rounded band. Correct. Whereas other bands who are just trying to copy the more brutal elements of them, that's one of the reasons they fall short, is because they don't have the chops and they don't have the tools to do a song like this, to do yeah. what Pantera can do. And and Phil has great range. And you, unfortunately, as later records on, you don't get to hear that as much because he went completely in the other direction. And so for me, that's why this is the crowning achievement in the trilogy for me of power metal to Cowboys from Hell to this album, because there are still elements of the older stuff in this album, and I think it's better for it. And yeah. as time went on, I think that they lost a lot of that stuff, and they tend to get a bit samey to me, where all of the songs end up being variations on the same thing, because they're not using all of the tools in their toolbox because they got away from them. And so this is where I feel like on this album, you still have, they're still hitting to all fields. They still have something for everyone in here. And they can be as brutal as By Demons Be Driven or, you know, uh, fucking hostile, but then have a song like this or have a song like This Love. Like that, to me, is what makes this record stand out, is that it's it's super well-rounded. It's funny, I remember when Far Beyond Driven came out, I think it was the Kerrang! review or it might have been in metal hammer but one one review that i read uh said that anselmo has 
basically ceased sounding anything like a human being. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which to me, that's an endorsement. But <laughs> but I right. understand but, well, because that's what people responded from. to, right? And so I think I think the people that came on and and were introduced to them either at Cowboys from Hell or Vulgar Display of Power, like they were just doubling down on what people wanted from them. This is what people wanted from them, you know? So, like, to me, of course, you're going to see what... uh, Because, again, when you look at the history of Pantera, what you see is a band that saw the changes coming and changed with them. Yeah, yeah. So, certainly, the whole story of their band is we will adapt to what people are responding to. And what people responded to from this album is the brutality. So of well, course they're going to double down on that, and they're going to. People weren't saying, people weren't coming out of this album saying, "Man, Hollow, right? Right, right. What but an I awesome th- tune Hollow is." <laughs> but I think their their genius, at least around this time, wasn't. I, I I think you're half right. They were responding, but not necessarily to what people liked, but what people were going to like. They were brilliant at saying, "You don't know it yet." But next year, this is what you're going to want to hear. This is what you're going to go crazy you. for. And that's what they wrote. So it, but wasn't, I think, it wasn't like they were reliving past glories, because a lot no, of bands no, no. do that. No, I agree. I think you're absolutely right, And I, but I think this was the last album that they did that on. Uh, so, I, yeah, think I, I disagree. See, I think Far Beyond Driven, I think they did. I think they knew that that was going to be the the thing and and that's why they changed for it but yeah but i admit that's that is my favorite pantera album so yeah. I, you know kind of i feel like this is the album like cowboys and then into this is where they read the tea leaves and said like oh man we're gonna be doing something in 1992 that people are gonna lose their shit about they just don't know it yet but well, we're gonna build to that and we're gonna right. deliver it yeah and then i feel like from every album on there they had already they thought they had already answered that question and yeah. so they were just giving them more of what they thought that they want as opposed to doing something new. I feel like this is the last album of theirs where they were doing something new that people had not heard before. And I feel like every album after this, they were doing things that people had heard before because they had already established their sound on this album. Um, uh, but that's just, again, I, that, that to me is, is this no, 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 three I, album evolution. I, I totally you know I mean? understand. I totally understand how you can, how you can sort of take that viewpoint, but good friends and a bottle of pills. I mean, yeah, nobody had heard anything quite like that before. Yeah. That's, you know, and I love that track. That's a standout track on the album for me. So um, one thing I wanted to just quickly mention more about Hollow, uh, talking about Phil as well, was that the uh, when it gets heavy at the end uh, and they're chugging along and he starts, he comes in with the vocals. It's a really good example. And he does this throughout lots of Pantera songs. Uh, and if you're, if you're looking for it, you will spot it. But it, this is a really good place to sort of see it in action, is his rhythmic way of singing. Uh, we were talking about how, you know, sort of the band were all kind of imperfect sync and everything. But Phil was always in sync with Dime's guitar as well. Yes. And this is a perfect example. His lyrics, when he starts singing, he is hollow as I alone. Yes. Shell of my friend, just flesh of my... He's following the guitar rhythm and he's yes. doing it but it sounds natural it's not forced it's not doesn't sound odd that was what he was so good at was following those strange and it's a strange rhythm but he could follow it with his lyrics with his vocal phrasing well even when he's saying mad at yeah, god I know. you know like just how he's delivering that absolutely yep. yeah it's and like i say he does that throughout a lot of, and i think that's one of the sort of 
unsung secrets, if you like, of why a lot of Pantera sounds so good and is groovy. Um, but th- that's a really clear example of it there. So, you know, sort of listen to that, get what I'm yeah. talking I mean, about, as, and then go and listen to other stuff and you will see it and you know, we'll hear totally. it. Totally. I mean, as a vocalist, the the choices that he makes in terms of when he's when he's letting it all hang out, like with the end of fucking hostile, when he's going spoken word over, you know, screaming something, like all of those choices work perfectly with yeah. what Pantera is doing on any given song. So he is, even though he may not be displaying on a lot of these songs the same range that we would see on previous works from him the choices that he's making are just as important and just as full of talent. You know right. what I mean? His ability because as a vocalist is to make yeah. the right decision for what the song needs at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. is, you know, again, that's something that I think people who haven't, who aren't necessarily up close and personal with it or have never done it themselves right. won't necessarily realize is again, you know, a part of what being a vocalist is. It's not just about singing well and standing there on stage you know there are these choices you make in songwriting even if and phil did write all his own lyrics but even if you didn't you know you're still making those choices and you're still the way that you sing it is still going to be a part of that song look at absolutely you know look at things like um so the john bush era anthrax stuff where you know john bush was not writing a lot of those lyrics um uh, he would instead just work on things like the melody lines and stuff and work right. those out with Scott Ian or Charlie. And, you know, but he's still, it's the way he sings and the choices he makes as he sings still contributes to that unique sound they had compared to the Joey Belladonna totally. uh, eras. <laughs> we have to say multiple eras now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And he's a great example of another uh, guy who I think doesn't maybe get as enough, enough credit, you know, in terms of his, uh, his overall abilities yeah well and we've we've gone on about that at length absolutely we certainly have <laughs> so all right let's uh this is going to turn into one of our longest episodes ever i think so let's i don't bring think that surprises anyone because i do feel like this is an album that uh or this is at at the very least a band that were on both of our lists as we're going to do an episode of yeah. like if, well, if you just, hadn't chosen this then i'm sure at some point i would have put a pantera album out there right. for sure you would have chosen cowboys or something probably yeah and i probably would have yeah yeah but they're so important that's the other thing it's like you know it's it's hard not to spend a lot of time talking about them there's still i'm sure think we'll finish the recording this and go oh god i didn't mention x or y because they are so important to the history yep. of modern metal. It's, but that's uh, where I feel like the discussion from the community is also going to kick in with that because there is oh, so yeah. much you yeah, can yeah. say about this band and um, especially this album and the time that it came out and what the musical landscape was at the time. It is uh, its importance to the musical landscape cannot be denied. It really can't or overstated. Yeah. So, right. so on that note, I will just remind everyone that uh, the Facebook group is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. You can email us or tweet us, um, go to thrash it podcast.com and you'll get the links to our, uh, you know, to the show email and then mine and Brian's personal Twitter, uh, profiles on there. And yes, of course, again, please, you know, spread the word, tell your friends, uh, rate us on iTunes or on Google play. and if you're not yet a uh, Patreon supporter, feel free. <laughs> By all means, go to patreon.com slash thrash it out and make a pledge today. Remember, minimum pledge is just $1 per episode. Uh, if you can afford more, that's wonderful, but $1 per episode is all we ask, uh, and you will help us keep thrashing. 
So, homework. Yes. Professor Brian, what are we going to talk about next time? Well, so your theme for this volume of Thrash It Out has been albums that sort of change the landscape. Albums that have been super important to how music has evolved over our lifetime. Um, where And my theme that I've sort of been following, which has sort of been an unspoken one to this point, is kind of a spinoff of that. My theme for this volume so far has been about respecting your elders and looking at bands that I feel like uh, deserve you know, to be recognized and deserve to be respected for their roots. And, you know, you mentioned in this uh, particular episode when we talked about Phil Anselmo and and how Rob Halford has had such a influence on him, especially his early stuff, right? And we talked about Judas Priest. You know, we talked about Ozzy. And so this time around, we are going to talk about another band that I feel like deserves to be recognized for their contribution to the rock and metal scene, and that is the Scorpions. And so we are going to talk about the 1982 classic blackout for the next episode of the thrash it out podcast. Wow. Okay. Uh, unless it's got winds of change on it, this is an album, which I am completely unfamiliar with. And I'm just going to say this. If, if anyone wants to argue the heaviness of this album, you're not listening to it loud enough. Just turn it up (laughs) a little bit more because this is a great, great, guitar album and not for solos although the solos are great but just a great just a great album so i'm excited for this um i have been one of the reasons that i'm picking this is because outside of listening to the homework for this episode which was pantera's vulgar display of power i have not been able to stop i've been on such a scorpions kick lately and uh, i just picked up savage amusement a few weeks ago and have been giving that a listen because i used to have that on vinyl when i was in uh high school but man blackout what it, and, and much like Judas Priest, the Scorpions are one of those bands that I could have picked about seven different albums from because they have definitive eras as well of their music. But uh, we're going to go with Blackout. Wow. Uh, okay. I, I literally do not know what to expect from this album because, as I say, I it is an album I am completely unfamiliar with. I'm almost completely unfamiliar with Scorpions full stop. You know, I've oh, heard, I've heard maybe two songs uh and you know never gotten into them never listened to them so this is going to be a real education for me this one so uh yeah that's going to be really interesting all righty all right uh oh one other reminder remember everyone if you are a patron that i am going to put the listener poll uh post i'm going to make that at some point soon so keep an eye out for that and do let us know what your nominations are for the listener choice episode so that we can uh during the scorpions episode that we're now going to do next uh, we will do the uh, the random draw and pick which album we're going to talk about. But until then, keep thrashing. We'll see you next time. Take care. <laughs>